Good news, everybody. We are here with Mario Garza of Symbolic Studies. No Gabe yet. Having some tech difficulties, but hoping for the best. Send him some. Uh, I sent him some advice. <laughs> Seems like today was meant to be the tech apocalypse with the whole like 10-4 emergency broadcast system, death frequencies. That was fun. <laughs> I hope everybody enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, say some prayers for me and the Thunder Gods that they will not take away my power today or tonight. It's happened a couple times today already. I think we're through it, though, and we're going to rock this conversation like a hurricane. So, Mario, how you been, man? Pretty good, dude. Thanks for the invite. When I saw the title for this show, I was really ex excited. And then you said you should just join us. And I'm like, hell yeah, that's going to be a good time. Oh, yeah. I would have invited you right away. For I had this thought that you were busy. Because Michelle was busy. So, right, right. Oh, no worries. But you guys have independent lives, apparently. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we are independent people. Um, but yeah, man, this is a great topic, obviously, to get into right now. It's what I've been thinking about because of Libra season. We talked about some of this stuff last week, even. And then I was on a show last night and we discussed um, some things that are related as well. So, just all in all, man, um, this has been on my mind for uh, a little while. And I feel like there's some things I haven't gotten off my chest about it yet so we'll see if we can get around to that good man yeah just please feel free to weigh in any thoughts you have on this i don't think it's possible to really comprehensively cover this subject in a uh one video <laughs> yeah i agree with that for sure no my dad's here what's up dad <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> nice. of good people in the chat let me just take a moment yeah Cherie, old world micmac stacy liam uh rachel Braden, aaron Hello, everybody. Jenny G, my lovely wife, who made me an excellent dinner. I would not have been able to put this together without her behind the scenes support as I sort of crammed. And Al Dog. Wow, we got a lot of awesome people in the chat. Do us a favor, though. Shoot it over to your favorite person who, know, who likes symbolism, you know, link to this stream. I think uh, we ought to have more more eyes on this info. This is going to be a fun one. I think, as is the custom here, the Interverse vibrant crew were not really the entry level folks. <laughs> True. You know, so um I'm I'm hoping that uh most of us at this point have a pretty good basic idea of the 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 mainstays in terms of the psychopomps of symbolism. You know, your Hermes is your main one, your Thoth, those types. So this the the slideshow I put together is more of the obscure and in some cases, more ancient versions of these characters. And what's fun is that we'll get to see how far back the symbolism goes. And the other, you know, the other question that I just want to be on our minds, is not really a question that we can answer objectively, but I really want to have on our minds the question of, is this just symbolism that is referring to nature? Or is it also referring to something that has a reality to it? As people who listen a lot know, I like to ask people what their thoughts are about the protagonos, the first born of the first cause, the first emanation from the divine source. You know, that idea, is it purely symbolic or, you know, and I want your thoughts on this, Mario, because I know you come at this from a scholarly angle, not really drinking Kool-Aid. <laughs> I try to do that, too. But, you know, it seems kind of philosophically sound that if all is mind, which I think I've 
been able to demonstrate to myself in my own life, you know, you have to prove it to yourself. I don't think you can prove it to other people, but if that's the case, and so we're all part of God's imagination, the first emanation, the first mind that becomes a separate conscious self-aware entity, you know, before even physical bodies, before even a physical material world, would that being be, you know, the trunk of the tree that all the rest of life is branching off of symbolically that's there, you know? And so if there's, if this being exists, does it want to help us? Does it want the leaves and buds and branches that are coming off of it to stay healthy, stay in flow, to migrate down to the forest floor when it's time for them to fall off the tree and then be absorbed back in through the root system and come back up and sprout again as leaves and buds. You know, I think there's something there, man. So that's the question on the back of my mind as we talk about this. Does this universal symbolism come just out just from the fact that there was some worldwide seafaring priest class that spread it everywhere and different regions then ran with it and it evolved over the ages so that the parts of the world that still carried the system have their own versions of it that have some differences or you know, is it because this is a being that exists and people have been of the past were actually mapping this mental metaphysical afterlife reality, you know, that universe B idea. Right. <laughs> so, or, you know, some of both, right. Some of both or neither. Yeah, no, man, these are excellent questions. Um, I keep on thinking of just, you know, coming from the one returning to the one, you know, that it seems like that has to just kind of be the setup here. Um, but yeah, certainly we'll unpack all of this uh, as we discuss things here tonight. Did you manage to uh, kind of complete your presentation here, uh, given the fact that you had some power issues or are, are there things that were still kind of uh, waiting to be included that you weren't able to? Well, you know, I, I tend to get overly ambitious anyway. And it seems like about 20 slides usually is the max we can actually cover. (laughs) Uh So I got around that many. There's more stuff that I would include if this could be just open-ended as long as possible. And I have some of that open as like web browser tabs, but not put into slides. So we may touch on the auxiliary things. We may make a part two out of this. There's an entire other side to this conversation of the cycle pump that I think is just going to need dedication to its own show. But also to keep in the back of our mind, the near-death experience and people's reports of meeting Jesus, meeting Buddha, meeting Krishna, meeting Odin, you know, the whole gamut of these psychopomp deities showing up in people's near-death You're going to have to forgive me if um, I'm not hearing you clearly or if I'm interrupting you because I can't, currently can't see what uh, you're doing right now because you are frozen and that could be a result of... What's going on on my end? Our internet has been notoriously slow lately. And so I'm inclined to think that that is the case. Um, or perhaps you dropped out entirely. You can, can you hear me now? Well, Mario, we'll wait for you to come back. But everybody, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully we'll see Gabe in here too. But I think if I just pull up the slides, then... When Mario can see again, he'll see that and he may leave and come back a few times. You know, that happens. But. Yeah, I really want him to answer that question, though, like, does he think that it's real? What do you guys in the chat think? Do you think there is really a. Hey, Mario, number two. 
<laughs> hey, what's up, dude? Sorry about that. My internet connection has been absolutely insane lately um, oh, in all the worst ways. So my apologies if I go in and out, but uh, just trying to uh, be patient here with everything. Yeah, that's no problem, dude. And I enjoyed your talk with Marty Leeds from yesterday on Michelle's Healing Home, even with the internet things. People are patient with that. You know, they know the good quality content. That's why they're here. But I wanted to know from you, you know, because I, I don't think you quite answered this question and it's OK to say, I don't know. But where do you lean on the possibility of this psychopomp deity, many faces to many different cultures actually existing? Right, right. Is it real? You know, I'm inclined to think most everything is essentially a metaphor. Um, and so I think that more than likely, perhaps it is is real perhaps it isn't man i don't know i was just talking to a, a client <laughs> earlier about some of this stuff but uh i'm inclined to think that it's more metaphorical but that there's a, a good reason behind the metaphor that perhaps even the metaphor and and why you know uh this figure has kind of been anthropomorphized or whatever um is you know maybe unveiled to us at some point almost kind of like oh i get it now that's why we have all of these different figures um but certainly it's almost kind of this idea of it's like coming across a traveler, right? Who's been to an exotic land that you haven't been to. And so they're going to give you information about where they have been, what they've seen, what they've come across, things of that sort. And so to me, it would almost make sense that if there is this journey, then obviously um, it's implied that other people have taken this journey before you. Other souls have taken this journey. So I can kind of see why there would be a figure that's indicative of going back and forth, you know, between these realms and everything else. Um, so I'm, I kind of think that it's more metaphorical personally right now in this moment, I suppose, but um, I I'm left to, you know, um, kind of update my opinion <laughs> as things move along here. Uh, maybe I'll have a different opinion down the road. I don't know. Yeah, it's complicated. The question of an, intermediary between you know that helps you cross the boundary the threshold it does sort of reek of the negative elements of the priestcraft where they are themselves the mediator between you and heaven or you and you know rewards or blessings yeah right <laughs> so you know that's not going well for humanity to have people playing that role you know pay me enough shekels and your sins are forgiven but on the other hand, the realm of expanded consciousness experiences of which they cannot really be properly put into words, you know, they can't, they can't really be explained in words, but <laughs> I have heard, you know, personal accounts from friends, from people I've met in travel. And it, there actually was a streak around 20, I want to say 2019, where over the course of the summer of 2019, I, I met three or four people in a short amount of time that had all had person claiming to have personal experience, personal meeting, speaking to seeing the entity Thoth Hermes. You mm, know, wow. They, they described him differently. Another one said it was Odin, <laughs> but you know, it's the same guy symbolically. So I think it might be the same guy and just he shows up in the clothes that you expect him in as a trickster. But the most interesting version of of meeting 
this psychopomp because the psychopomp we'll get into what that word can mean but yeah i'll hold that but the most interesting came from a, a friend of mine named cammy um by the way this coincided in two of these accounts with being hit struck by lightning or nearly Whoa. struck by lightning so my friend cammy gets struck by lightning and then starts having like visionary experiences with hermes i, I think it was hermes for her might have been Thoth for her. And all of a sudden has a proficiency and skill in painting that she didn't have before and like an urgent need to do it. And she just starts painting all this alchemical symbolism that is accurate to one who would have studied this stuff deeply for years in a complex way. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I love hearing those types of stories. Um the 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 thing that comes to mind immediately talking about Hermes or Thoth or Mercury is obviously to be mercurial, right? Everyone knows what that means. And so I've mentioned it before here on the show, but Mercury has been such an enigmatic figure for me because he has, they have so many different representations, so many different expressions. And so mercurial figures, um, there are many, 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 right? And he can be expressed in many different forms. And so the fox, right, is mercurial, as an example. The the Gemini twins, which I know we're going to get into, they're they're mercurial, um, you know, as as a kind of combination or a duo. And so um it's interesting to me that he wears so many masks or is presented in so many different ways too. So then it kind of becomes like who exactly is Mercury then? You know, there's been many different sort of uh, deities that are mercurial in nature and it's seemingly kind of this endless sort of thing where you just find new expressions of the same sort of figure. So then that kind of adds another layer that kind of complicates things too in regards to if he's an actual figure or not, you know, which ones are considered to be uh actually mercury or perhaps something else you know but it's all very fascinating stuff dude thanks for sharing that that's pretty wild i've never had uh an experience like that <laughs> seriously though i just think philosophically like if all life is really one which psychedelic experiences or transcendental consciousness expanding experiences will tell you that it is then wouldn't like you know if we look at the fractality of nature i think the most the most perfect representation is the tree of the whole of reality. Lightning makes that dendritic form your blood vein, the veins in your arm, the, you know, the way rivers and estuaries branch off, obviously the, the branches and twigs of a tree. So is, you know, if life is structured in that way on the macrocosm too, fractally, then is there a trunk? that all that life is connected to. And that's kind of what I'm starting to see this psychopomp figure as either symbolically or literally. And I think we all, we can only ever answer that for ourselves. but why I, you know, why I'm starting to maybe bring it up as a possibility that it's real is because uh, like that it begs the question of like, do you trust it whenever you meet the guide after you, you pass, you know, mm. or do you believe that it's the, the soul trap in the reincarnation prison and Zalouche factory? <laughs> and I think it's easy to feel scared. Like maybe I'm being tricked. Maybe this is a, a bad entity or something, especially because in truther circles that, that gets thrown around a lot, like don't go into the light. 
It's actually a hologram matrix created by the alien grays. But philosophically speaking, if this is one big life, it's all connected and there's a trunk, then maybe that that guide is the trunk, which means it's you. It's the big part of you. (laughs) It's the oldest, eternalist part of you that is there to help the younger parts of you, just like, Mm. you know, you work out so that your arms are stronger, not flimsy. But it's you, the trunk, that is like helping the arm or the fingers, you know? Right, right. I I love the fact that you're using the trunk metaphor personally, because when I think of Hermes Mercury... I'm just always thinking about the world axis, obviously. Uh, So as though that needs to be kind of said again, but um, the world axis is the bridge between these different realms. That is how Mercury gets from plane to plane, sphere to sphere, if you want to put it that way. And um, traveling up and down the trunk. That's it. He's just traveling up and down the trunk, 100%. And I've been really into this idea lately that there have been three major symbolic traditions and that we currently live in a solar previous to that was lunar previous to that was stellar slash polar. And when I think of the metaphor and when I think of the symbolism behind this tree, as it relates to these different traditions, to me, it's like the top of the tree is what most people are going to see. It's going to be the thing that receives the most rays of light from the sun. It's going to be where if there's uh, buds and flowers and fruits and nuts and things like that, it's going to be in the upper portion of the tree. And so this is very outward and very expressive. If you're just going to take a walk in the park or the forest, you're going to acknowledge the upper portion of the tree more than any other part of it. You're not going to acknowledge the roots. Most people don't think about the root system. And then to me, invisible. It's invisible. Exactly. Out of sight, out of mind. Um, So the solar portion of the tree would be the upper portion. If there's flowers, those flowers are emblematic to me very much of the sun in in a lot of different ways. Very expressive. You know, it's almost like each petal is kind of like a ray, something along those lines. It captures your attention. It's probably going to be the most colorful element. And then the trunk being the lunar tradition. um, This is very interesting because I brought up last time. And perhaps even the time before that was on that uh, I see a lot of symbolism overlapping between um, lunar symbolism and mercurial symbolism, so much so that they're really fusing together in my mind. And the glyph of Mercury has those horns, right? It has kind of a crescent moon on top of its head. And Thoth was a moon god, right? And so uh, that kind of can't be overlooked. And so Mercury lines up with lunar symbolism with cycles and time and and even water and silver and things like that, which also overlaps with lunar symbolism. So the trunk itself, I relate to the lunar tradition, which I kind of associate with Mercury as well. And then the roots, I consider to be more of the stellar tradition. Personally, Uh, I see the stellar tradition as being more feminine. I consider it to be more of the root system here. I think a lot of the oldest myths come from that tradition, which uh, lines up also, too, with the polar tradition. So this is something that I'm kind of... um, I'm I'm starting to kind of uh, think that this is there's some merit here that this structure actually makes sense. I didn't come up with this. This is material that I'm reading from other authors, um, but I can kind of wrap my head around it. But the trunk, no doubt, I, I think that there actually is a lot to be said about the trunk relating to lunar symbolism and mercurial symbolism. Josh says the roots are the plant's head. They're the reverse of us. Hmm. 
just like their CO2 to O2 cycle is reverse of ours. So their heads are in the ground. And that makes sense because the roots are the older part in a way, you know, it comes out of the roots. And so yeah. the, the branches and the top of the tree is the, the youngest part. <laughs> exactly. 100%. Exactly right. Yeah. So that would mean if that's opposite, then yeah, the roots would be a stellar thing. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. And I think about the stars and how so many cultures, you know, have this idea that the stars are obviously worth acknowledging. Um, clearly, you've covered this a million times on your show. And so I'm starting to see the night sky as the actual the root system here. So it's the spiritual root system here. So when you're looking up there, um, I tend to think that you're just looking at the spirit realm, essentially, but you're looking at probably the oldest aspect of everything that you can see visibly here, which would be the roots of the tree. Right. Yeah, I've actually got a slide that kind of makes that assertion, too. So nice. I'm, I'm going to get into the some slides then. Gabe is do it. negotiating with Hades. He says, <laughs> I see him kind of coming in and out. <laughs> OK, man, I feel for you, man. Like this is a juicy weave. I, I mean, I'm sure you want in on this, buddy. We want you here. So everyone, you know, send the good juju to Gabe to figure out his tech thing and We'll get into some slides here. So just to define the term, I know we've just been throwing it around. Good to define terms, though. A psychopomp is either a guide of souls to the place of the dead or the spiritual guide of a living person's soul. So it's that second definition that I wanted to include this for. Uh, also, because it's interesting, the um, etymology of psychopomp, which is psyche, meaning soul. And the Greek pompos is like a conductor or mm. to send something, one that sends something along. So we have a conductor of souls. Now we have a very like musical idea coming into the mix. But that second definition of the spiritual guide to a living person's soul is very apropos because there are people that are either using just the symbolism and the scriptures that talk about these beings as a guide for their soul. And then there's the individuals that I alluded to that, you know, I've met in my journey that have said that these, that the cycle pump actually does give them guidance in their life through dreams, through meditation experiences where they connect with it almost in like a seance way is what it seems like to me. <laughs> you know, there's, there is so much possible for people outside of normal modality of consciousness. I've, I've mentioned it before, but like I, I stopped doing psilocybin mushroom years ago because I was starting to see people that other people couldn't see, but those people could touch me and interact with me and it freaked me the hell out. Wow. So, you know, there's, there's the possibility that there's more going on here overlaid or parallel or just invisible in a different spectrum, you know, right, right where we're at. Right. I, I like what you said earlier about this potentially being the oldest aspect of self. If this is all one world tree sort of creation, this is just an older aspect of you as is kind of everything here. Right. And we're all just a fractal piece of the whole and that everything kind of came out of this unified um, sort of seed, if you will. And a lot of people, when they talk about their holy guardian angel, 
Um, some people have an understanding that this angel is outside of self. And then some people have an understanding that this is just your higher self, actually. So I tend to default with that. So um, I don't know. I, I guess I can just appreciate how you put that out there. And then um, what's up, Kyle? World Tree Time. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, but as the spiritual guide of a living person's soul, that's something I've been thinking about lately in terms of shepherd symbolism. So if you saw the Marty Leeds thing, I, that's one of the questions that I brought up was, uh, you know, the role of the shepherd and things of that sort. And I told him that when I was looking into it recently because of the hermit, to me, the hermit seems like he's an elder shepherd. You know, he has that staff, right? And he has that cloak and that hood. He lives a solitary life. And so uh, this is very much emblematic of shepherd symbolism. And uh, obviously Christ was known as the good shepherd, as have a lot of other um, sort of myths out there or deities. But um, this idea that there's going to be someone that is leading the flock, right? And that they're willing to basically risk their life for the flock, even for just one stray sheep or something. Um, to me, it's very touching to kind of consider that. And there's something comforting, even just reading about that kind of material. And I watched a handful of documentaries, really short documentaries about these shepherds. And there was something about it that I, I really felt like some sort of connection with these guys. And I'm like, this is a really, really interesting sort of job to have an interesting career and an interesting lifestyle. So uh, it's just, if anything, it's been something I've been thinking about lately. And I, I see value in the symbolism. I definitely resonated with that part. I really like in his sermon and when he brought it up again in your talk and he had it in a recent sermon where uh, Marty was quoting some Bible verses where the shepherd had to go retrieve one of his 100 sheep from going up the mountain that was going up the mountain by itself. But he loved that one more than the rest. So, you know, (laughs) the there is something to say about that. Like your higher self or the, the wisest part of you loves when you explore, when you dare to break away from consensus, <laughs> you know, cause that's ultimately what it is that the crossing between thresholds of being able to perceive m- more of the truth of what is here than the average person. Well, that's breaking away from consensus reality. You know, that just because (laughs) it's not consensus with everybody doesn't mean it's not there. But what you believe definitely colors what it is that you're able to perceive 100 percent. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just say real quick um, that the shepherd staff and even the caduceus, right, that Hermes holds. uh, And I'll say by extension, the wand or um, even uh, the scepter, right? Powerful figures have always held these things. And in my opinion, it does go back to the world axis, whether they are aware of that or not. But one of the symbols or I guess uh, the attributes of the world axis is that it brings order and that it brings structure and that it's actually very much related to authority and it's related to the law as well. And so um, even you think about a staff being able to, Uh, to be used as like an implementation to uh, defend yourself, right? Or to um, inflict damage upon someone else or whatever. And so it's very foul. It can both guide your steps and protect you. 
That's right. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it represents order and structure and stability and all these different things. So I just think it's really appropriate that a conductor of souls, a guide of souls would have that as kind of their main tool. Well, it's going to be interesting when we see some of these more like some of these uh, alternate, say alternate, but maybe more original in some cases. Psychopomp deities, because we know about the caduceus of Mercury, but it gets interesting when we start seeing some of the, the variations or older versions before it was that staff. Yeah. So another word you're going to see a lot in this talk is. Chthonic. And that is a word from the ancient Greek referring to ground or soil. But I can't help but point out the similarity between soil and soul as a word. And especially, you know, you brought up that lunar symbolism, lunar tradition. One of the things that is often associated with the moon is that it's like a repository of sorts for the deceased, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, for deceased souls. Is it like a way, way station on their journey beyond? Yes. And there may be other reasons for this, but one thing that I think that pertains to is how the crescent symbol is also secretly <laughs> a uh, arc symbol. Mm-hmm. It's a boat, especially when you see it with the uh, the points horizontally, you know, perpendicular to the, the ground, so to speak, like a, so we're, we're, instead of it being like a side crescent, it's a, tilted crescent hopefully that makes sense but that's a arc symbol and just like the arc is a symbol of the preservation of life in a destruction and a regeneration so too does the soil um, preserve life over the course of the winter seeds fall from the trees and from the plants everything freezes over everything dies but then that stuff is preserved in the soil and comes back and there's way more way more to that that uh, i think than what we even realize in terms of just how much information the soil can preserve but when you think about the soul it's what better way to define it than the the sum total and full complete repository of all of your existence memory experience and being you know it's that right. well that you draw from to express yourself in these little minutia micro expressions that we call physical life and individual incarnations. But like the soul is the reservoir of all of it. And the soil is that for the earth. It's the, the, the repository of everything that ever lived, whether living, you know, it's bones in the dust, you know, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Yeah, no, you got it, dude. Um, I'm really glad you brought this up. Because another thing that has just been on my mind uh, perpetually, especially since Virgo season, is the symbolic relationship between the stars and the soil underneath our feet. And so Virgo is referred to as the queen of heaven, but she's also the queen of earth. And so things grow in the dark, you know, and when you look at the symbolism of Virgo, all both sides as above, so below the uh you know, I guess the darkness of the night sky and everything else and the darkness of the soil. And um, I guess the receptivity of the heavens and the receptivity of the soil as well. Kind of, honestly, they're starting to really blur symbolically. A lot of things are really starting to kind of just like fuse together. And so uh, the ground underneath our feet 
And uh, the fact that we put seeds into the ground, right? We sow those seeds, the receptive earth, and what's happening above our heads, the night sky. Um, there's a lot of overlapping symbolism. It's kind of staggering, to be honest. And so uh, when I think of the underworld, I think of it as, you know, what what's happening above our heads, not necessarily, obviously, what's happening literally underneath Earth. And so I also think there's a sweet spot to the underworld where several groups have believed that the passageway to the underworld is in the northern sky as well. So it's interesting that Ursa Major and Minor, they're plows, right? Plowing the field, right? That is the heavens. So a lot to and get that into Virgo, there. Queen of Heaven, the, the Mesopotamian name for her was basically a word that meant like a furrow. That's like right. Exactly. With a plow. Yeah, exactly. So this slide just covers some of the common symbolism for psychopomp. So spirits, angels, demons, deities, watchers. The watchers aspect is one that I wasn't able to fully flesh out in the slides tonight, but I just want people to keep that in mind that there is an element of like watcher symbolism, observing, watching. And well, interesting you brought that up. You know, some of these wandering stars or what we call planets are referred to as watch stars, like that the a deity is watching down on us from up there, which is also kind of under whenever and we'll see that, you know, more as we go, but also psychopomps are associated with horses, which makes sense because they're trans and I didn't include it, but boats, horses and boats are kind of a, a package deal <laughs> in symbolism, wolves or dogs, many different types of birds or just bird like symbolism, feathers and, and wings, and then twins. And I know I'm missing some stuff. I'm sure there's more to psychopomp symbolism, but this is like the common stuff. And then to name a few uh, psychopomps from various mythologies, you have Anubis, Yama from the Hindu, Charon, Mercury, the Valkyries. In Japanese folklore, the Shinigami. I'd like to go into them more in a future conversation on this subject. And then uh, Sholatl from the Aztec, Buddha. Jesus, Samael, St. Peter, Archangel Michael, Hades slash Pluto, Thoth, Hermes, Odin, Osiris, etc. So that's, you know, just sort of a roundup to get us warmed up. And then, yeah, as above, so below. The underworld is represented in the sky as constellations and planets that pass below the horizon uh, traversing and are traversing under the earth. Kind of typoed there, but. That's what makes the the sky above an underworld symbol. One of the reasons for that is because they actually pass below the horizon and appear to go under the earth from our vantage point, meaning that everything you see in the sky makes an underworld journey in some respect at some time becomes unseen and invisible. And they're said to die whenever they're there's a couple of ways that a constellation or star can die metaphorically. The sun can obscure it um but more commonly it's because the thing passes under the horizon so right right and, and then as uh these stars pass under the horizon there's other stars that are rising above it and there's so many stories as you're already aware of of say as an example um you know I, i'm thinking right now of uh the Mithraic mysteries and the bull, you know, being stabbed 
by uh, Mithras, the slaying of the bull. And you'll always see uh, the scorpion pinching its testicles, right? That's something that you're going to see in that Taroctony scene. And so it's the bull falling as the bull falls, the scorpion is rising, right? There's there's countless stories, it seems like, that are basically encoding this astrological sort of uh, play, if you will, of uh, something dying, but something else rising. Oh, yeah. A really good example of that is Serapis, which, you know, I allude to it a little bit in this, but it deserves more attention. And also the Mithraism and other Persian Iranian mythologies would be good to go deeper into for exploring this theme. You know, we're (laughs) (laughs) I'm just picking and choosing the ones that I was interested in today. But they're like, this is such a vast subject. Totally. So from here on out, we're going to cover and uh, explore some psychopomp type deities that are uh, I just have a list or or a list of them here to go through (laughs) and hopefully some of these are new to you which I think will make it more fun so this is (laughs) Vanth Mm -hmm. Vanth is have you heard of Vanth Mario no this one's new to me I think it's either Vanth or Vanth I mean when you're reading ancient Etruscan (laughs) it's uh, you know your guess is as good as mine but I'd like you to describe for us what you see going on with these different depictions of Vanth. So these are all ancient, you know, going these we're in the BCs here, like fourth, fifth, or even older century BC. Right. Okay. So what I see is an angelic figure. It appears as though they have breasts. So it's feminine, would be my guess. Um, and they have wings, kind of Virgo-like in a way. And at least in the first image here, what you see is uh, on both of its hands, it has uh, what looks like two serpents. And then I'm not quite sure what is actually like within its hand. It looks like it's almost like a serpent combined perhaps with some sort of vessel or cup or horn or something along those lines. I think it's then, a horn. Is it a horn? That's okay. my, it's either a horn or a torch. Oh, okay. I got you. Commonly, she's got a torch, as you see on the right. But a horn would also be appropriate. Horns symbolize radiance and light. Uh Right, right. Definitely. Yeah, right. Exactly. So she's holding that torch on the right, the torch bearer kind of leading the way, you know, in my opinion, uh, very world access-y. But yeah, that's that's what I see right off the top of my head. Yeah, you you nailed it. That's a lot of the stuff that's going on here. And I just got to say the, uh, <laughs> the ancient Etruscans had some pretty cool uh, sculpture going on here, I guess, mm. engravings, carvings and, and frescoes, but this is classic stuff. So here's a next slide on Vanth. We see that she goes back to at least the fifth century BC. And if you want to jump in uh, on any of the things I'm saying here, or just wait to the end and, and reply, that's fine, but feel free to interrupt. So she's one of the most common figures depicted in Etruscan funerary art. Vanth is often depicted on cinerary urns, which would be where you kept the ashes after a cremation. And she gazes sternly at the deceased, holding a scroll. So that's an important symbol. She's holding a scroll that relates to their life. Didn't have the scroll in the pictures that I had here, but there are versions of her holding the scroll, quite a few. Her other possessions include the torch and the key. Mm. 
<laughs> right? Classic psychopomp. Yeah. <laughs> wears she either wears a tunic or she's bare chested with straps across her bare breasts and fur boots. Her garb is the dress of a huntress. At least that's what most uh, Etrusco researchers would say. I think that it's huntress symbolism too. I'll even back up here again. You know, um, look at her in the middle one and on the right. You you definitely can kind of feel like a wild woman, almost mm-hmm. Artemis type vibe from that. Yes. Mm-hmm. I see that too. Yeah. So she's usually winged and often has bearded snakes hmm. entwined around her arms. I'm not sure what they mean by bearded. Uh, that must just be a type of snake. <laughs> I don't think it's like hair, like human facial hair. So Vanth is present at death, but not seemingly its cause. She attends the deceased from the moment of death until entry into the underworld. And she is often represented at battles and at the slaughter of prisoners or leading souls on their way. That, in addition with the fact that she is frequently depicted with multiple Vanth figures in one scene, like a bunch of them, means there's got to be a link to the Norse Valkyries here, Mm. right? Very Valkyrie-type symbol. And she often appears with Charon, or Charon, who is a Etruscan prototype of Charon the Ferryman, or many oh. other things. So we'll, we're actually going to look at him uh, directly as well. But yeah, Mario, what do you think about this one? I think it's interesting that um, she's a woman. And I think that that's really fascinating. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Ma'at. And Ma'at and her feather of truth. And, um, you know, uh, that's what's being weighed against a man's soul, a person's soul in the weighing of the souls ritual, which we talked about last week. But um, she's referred to as the mistress of the underworld. And so um, there's a lot of goddess symbolism uh, here. You know, I think probably earlier on in my sort of symbolic journey with psychopomp symbolism and stuff, I always kind of thought of a male figure or uh, perhaps an androgynous figure like Hermes or something along those lines. But to me, having a female psychopomp uh, is very, very interesting. It to me makes a ton of sense because for all intents and purposes, the way I tend to look at it is that the underworld is actually very, very feminine. It's related to this root system. You know, it's related to this stellar tradition or the polar tradition, which it's I find to be it's a container. Exactly. Exactly. So to me, that's just really appropriate in and of itself. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of these symbols definitely are related to other psychopomps. Uh, the scroll, I think, is interesting, too. There's always this idea of, I guess, uh some sort of record of your life being revealed to you when you die. Uh, Some people have said that there's a like life review sort of thing. When you cross over some people who've had near death experiences have mentioned something along those lines, or as we're talking about, or as I just mentioned, the weighing of the souls, right? Um, Thoth is there and he's the scribe, I, I believe most often. And so there's this idea of record keeping and being revealed these records or something along these lines, some sort of literature about your life, or uh, perhaps it's like karmic debt, which Libra symbolism actually kind of is tied to as well. And um, Libra, too, is very much related to books and libraries and bookkeeping and things like that. So the first five words, yeah. Libra first five letters. Books. Yeah, right. Exactly. So uh, I'm really appreciating Libra's correspondence with afterlife stuff. Like 
I, I knew about that in years past, but it's really, really just kind of popping off for me now. Um, so anyways, all that stuff is very fascinating. Yeah, man. And we also have the twin idea because I didn't show it in uh, the images here, but if you look up Vanth, you will see a lot of the frescoes with Vanth. She's it's her and Karen. Karen. <laughs> Charon. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, a male and female psychopomp type figure together. So you have this twin twinning idea going on as well. Right, right. Definitely. And then uh, the, the Karen or uh, it kind of sounds like Chiron a little bit, which some people say Chiron is um, the inspiration behind Sagittarius. Obviously, there there's various interpretations of this, but. I've brought this up before that, you know, there are some older Sagittarius figures that were believed to be essentially psychopomp, you know, in nature. And that that was their deal is they were the conductor of souls and they're half horse. Right. So going back to this travel symbolism and everything that you mentioned already. And then there's in Islam, a being called the Quaren or the I think you would pronounce it kind of like Karen. <laughs> and it is basically a, a companion spirit that's with a person for their entire life that watches their deeds and reports them back to the demiurge or to God. Oh, so, you know, like knows if you've been naughty, knows if you've been nice. And it makes me wonder if that, that word, uh, the name that the Islamic uh, mythology has for that being is associated with this Etruscan Karen. Well, I mean, it's related, but the idea of a ka in Egypt, it's like your uh, invisible twin or like your invisible double, your spiritual twin. You know, oh, yeah. So, and the Rin is the name in Egypt. So the ka oh. Rin. Oh, nice, dude. Almost like, <laughs> almost like you're, you're ref- referring to like your, your name as in your reputation has to do with like the, the what how you're weighed in that scroll of your deeds and whether or mm. not you know you're punished or rewarded in the afterlife then another thing that came to mind maybe you consider it a stretch if you like you know i'm not making a claim here but phil- with philology letter swaps that are permissible <laughs> and you know the more letter swaps you toss in the more uh stretchy it gets but V swaps with B, N swaps with R, and T or TH swaps with D. So Van is like Bard, like Bard as in Bardo, which is an Mm. afterlife thing in Buddhism. Exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating, dude. I'm going to say this again. I want a list of these letter swaps. I've asked Slick (laughs) this before. You guys have so much good information about all of that. Just a simple one page PDF of like the common ones. I would be all over that. I would even pay money for that, to be honest, because uh, you guys got it going on with that. But that's very good, man. That's that's interesting. I've actually I've got that somewhere. We did a stream on letter swaps. Oh, sweet. it's worth revisiting though. I think I could do it better. <laughs> so we might, <laughs> we might get into that again someday, but if you just ask me uh, sometime, remind me, we can, I'll send you that right on. Nice. Or, or that episode It'd be fun to do more content about that. The simple ones are obvious as Josh says, that's right. 
Um, and then once you start getting, you know, start tacking in more and more swaps, it gets more stretchy, but it's definitely possible. It's possible. Um, you know, Italy where the Etruscans were at, that's very connected to the Eastern world and, you know, Buddhism made it very far or maybe Buddhism comes from this. It's mm. hard to say. I think that there's connections here. Buddhism is the hardest thing to penetrate symbolically though. Like, mm. uh, you know, as someone who studies this stuff, I, th I find Buddhism to be the most difficult because it's um, vast and, you know, there's Chinese, there's Japanese, there's mm. uh, Indian, there's all these different parts of, and then more near East Buddhism. So it gets convoluted as heck. And so I'm not covering Buddha very specifically in this talk, but, you know, in the future, I would like to, as I have time to do more research about it, find more examples of, as, of Buddha as the psychopomp, because I do know from near death experiences that Buddha shows up for people. Mm, interesting. Right, right, right. No, Not that all makes Buddha sense. Buddha and Hermes have the same mom. <laughs> <Maya>. <laughs> Right. If you don't mind, dude, I'm kind of curious, these bearded snakes, you want to just go back one slide and see, it's like, is that what's being referred to on the right? No, they would be connected unless oh, those man, are. Maybe that's the beard. Yeah, maybe it is actually. And the mouth is kind of open or something. And so what you're seeing is uh, like a goatee sort of thing, perhaps. Oh, OK. And I just Googled it <laughs> like the phrase bearded snake. and. It looks like, you know, according to this image from some Museum of Fine Arts in Dallas, Texas, there's a image here of uh, Hermes staff. And instead of I'll just bring it on the screen, I, okay. you know, this is just a, a really quick Google search. So it's not like a claim or anything. But if we pull this up. It is kind of similar to what that looked like. and. So here we can see some maybe connection with Hermes and this Vanth uh, character. They don't really. Oh. oh, Rachel says she's going in the chat. Rachel, thank you for that super chat. I've been meaning to say thank you. You're such a great supporter. Appreciate you. Yeah, and Logan awesome. sent me a cash app super chat. So you nice. guys appreciate you so much. You're the reason why I can keep going here and doing this and putting my whole day or multiple days into this type of research to talk to you guys about it. Very awesome. So yeah, sure. it says something about early fifth century BC, and that's about the time of the Vanth character in terms of what the archaeological record claims about it. So very cool. Bearded that is interesting. Snake. The bearded serpent. Okay. Going to be thinking about that one. Yeah. It's more, we may have opened a gravy portal and we just don't know it yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is going really great. Huh? So glad we're doing this, Mario. Having fun. Yeah, man. I, I'm enjoying this for sure. So I, I like what we did before, and I'd love for you to talk about what you see going on with Charon, Karen. Yeah, definitely. I would if my internet was uh, fast enough to actually see what you've put up here. Uh, so right now it's just a spinning wheel is all I see, but it's going to come up like any second. So you might just have to describe it to me for the time being. <laughs> I think that you okay. should just it's here. I see it. I see it. Okay, right on. Awesome. Oh, interesting. Okay. Look at those hammers. Right. So uh definitely look like 
sledgehammers or mallets of some sort. Once again, I'm thinking about that staff and um, thinking about uh, the potential world axis implications there. It looks as though um, the figure on the right kind of has, uh, is it pointed ears? Uh, but on the left, it kind of looks as though maybe it's implying uh, either horns or or perhaps like a, a small wing or something like that on its head. I'm not sure. And then uh, two of the figures do look winged. And the one in the middle, it's interesting that he's kind of hunched over a little bit and he has his hand at his waist side. That's kind of curious. I think he might even be using his hammer like a staff. Yes, absolutely. Yep. That's what it looks like for sure. And then it looks as though, oh, he, uh, he has an animal skin wrapped around him. It looks like doesn't look, I, I don't know what kind of animal that is, but that's interesting for sure. Um, and so I wonder if that's supposed to be like a lion, but its mane is kind of like not that prominent or large, but I'd be very curious to know what that animal is. And then also very curious detail with the figure in the middle, the fact that it looks as though a noose is hanging from between his legs. Whoa. Oh, I didn't catch that. Um, oh man. Look at that, dude. That's fascinating. Uh, This is uh, new to me, too. I can't say I've ever really looked into this figure, but I'm intrigued. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. uh, I like that you pointed out that the ears could also double as feathers or like small wings. I hadn't thought Mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. But usually it's described by the researchers as being like pointed ears. But Mm. I see it. I totally see it. That could have been meant to be wings or feathers. Right, right. Notice there's an X as well on the, on the hammer. Yes. And so um, X marks the spot. I talked about this last night in the stream that I was in uh, with old world Florida, but the X also to me, in my opinion, the X really is, it's a, um, it's a symbol of so many different things, but you know, there's a reason why we have crosses, you know, uh, in graveyards and you're going to see so many of them. Right. Uh, I really think that the X or the cross, the, you know, sort of face value interpretation numerologically is number four, four quadrants, four arms coming from the center. But that center point represents the fifth point. And so it represents the point of uh, ascension or transcendence or whatever you might want to say. And so I kind of see the cross as being like a crossing over sort of symbol. And Absolutely. so, yeah, as he's holding it right there, it, you know, it reminds me of like a towel cross or something. It appears like maybe that dr- skin draped over him. Maybe it, the head of that thing is right here. Yes. So yeah. if I had to guess, I would think it might be a wolf, a wolf skin. OK, just based on how much wolf symbolism goes with with these Etruscan Catholic deities. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing to point out is his and also like see the paws like where it's tied around his neck. It kind of looks like maybe a dog's paws or wolf paws. I could see my that. Guess. Yeah, no, the dog underworld symbolism, it, it's there all day long. So that would make sense. And it's also interesting to point out how he has these tusks, which yeah. is very like in the modern, you know, in modern fantasy, it's orc like looks like an orc. True. And we may or may not have time to get into it, but there's this entire other Etruscan underworld deity 
called Orcus, mm. which is worth <laughs> at least touching on. We'll at least touch on it. Uh, I need to do more looking into it. But that noose between the legs, that is a good catch. I've oh, never read anything tail? about that. It's oh, like, it, is it a tail noose? Look at, look at the end of the noose on the right-hand side. It, it almost kind of looks like um, a lion's oh. tail or something like that. It's a tail tied into a noose. Man. Mm. Yeah. Just the like the sophistication of this from 400, 500 BC is amazing. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so that's just, ta- I was talking about the, uh, what we see in the images and to go through a few things that I, I wrote down about him. Karen is thought to guard the entry to the underworld. So he's a little different than. Pretend like, okay, just to be fair, this is all interpretations of researchers looking at stuff that's thousands of years old and, you know, putting their modern opinion on it. So take it all with a grain of salt. The most that we can say about it conclusively is what we can see depicted in the image. Right. But he is depicted with a hammer, pointed ears, snakes wrapped around his arms sometimes, which we didn't see in those ones. But that's occasionally part of the symbolism like like Vanth. And he's also often a bluish color. His skin is mm. blue, which sounds very Indian. You know, it sounds like mm-hmm. Hindu deities. The hammer, though, along with volcanoes being underworld symbols, suggests to me, this wasn't written anywhere, that um, Karen, I think, is related to Vulcan. I mean, just look at uh. this figure on the left, this this crater that he's uh, shown on here is from Volci in Italy. Mm. You know, that's like named after, um, modernly named after Vulcan. So in various images, aspects of his characterization include enormous wings, snakes for hair. Mm. Hello. <laughs> a hooked nose that gets associated with like a vulture's beak. <laughs> hooked nose. That's a, you know, that's a loaded symbol right there. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, exactly. <laughs> uh, heavy brow ridges, large lips, fiery eyes, and a black beard. Now, I think it's fascinating how on the left, he's uh, he appears to have breasts and he's wearing a dress. Mm-hmm. And that dress has what may be a solar symbol down on the bottom left. So unlike the Greek adaptation, Charon the Ferryman, Charon guided and also you know the in at the end is more of a latinized thing like a romanized thing the way it's spelled in the etruscan inscriptions is actually like keru so to me that is important because uh especially like that the r and the l were interchangeable it it could also be like kalu or Something along those lines. Mm -hmm. But he guided the souls on horseback rather than a rowboat like the ferryman. And he also said to bring horses to the newly dead. But that that uh, crater on the left with him on it. Hopefully it's come up for you in your slow Internet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can see it. You see, there's like a cross dressing um, hermaphrodite element to him here, too. Exactly. And and as you said, cross dressing, I was acknowledging that cross, you know, on his chest there. Um, and so it's fascinating to me. I'm always looking at just like with tarot cards, right? So what its posture is saying, and I'm just acknowledging the fact that it's left leg, right? It almost looks like, um, it's more so angled towards us 
and uh, it almost looks kind of hidden with the artwork on the right hand side. This is in contrast to its right leg, which is kind of out there a little bit more and you can see the bend of the knee and it's obviously um, it's horizontal, it's foot. And I'm just noticing what you referred to as a solar symbol, but it makes me wonder if it's a stellar polar symbol. I'm just acknowledging the seven rays that are emanating from it, you know, so number seven being, you know, very much tied to the northern sky with the seven stars of Ursa Major and Minor. And also to Ursa Major was referred to as the thigh of a bull and leg symbolism definitely comes up with all of that as well. So the fact that it is right there on the leg is very, very interesting. It could have been anywhere else on his dress, really. Um, But it's it's right there on the leg. That's very curious to me. Yeah. And some of it, like his monstrous appearance, especially if you take off the N as the Etruscans would have spelled it and consider the RL possible switch, mm-hmm. then that Karu, Kali, could be a relation as well. Kali from the uh. Hindu pantheon, who is very monstrous, has the sharp teeth. You know, the fact that he's kind of feminine here makes me wonder if there's a connection with that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. So you're going to have to educate me here. Is a crater essentially just a vessel? Yeah, yeah, okay. I think it's like a... What is a crater? I think it's like a vase of some kind. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just looked, just checked. It's a two. So it's a vase that has two handles is what they call it. And uh, mostly used for the mixing of wine with water, a mixing vessel. Oh man. And just the idea of a mixing vessel, you know, like you're putting this guy that's uh, about, (laughs) he's mixing it up right there with his uh, feminine clothing. And the psychopomp, you know, being the uh, and both water and alcohol being mercurial elements in terms of their their solvent nature. Yes. Alchemically. Exactly. I it's it's so wild to me to think about, by the way, just what's going on in popular culture with uh, the fluid gender stuff. Right. And just like looking at this figure here, I'm like, just in my mind, I was like, I've seen people, you know, walk around like this in Portland, you know. And so, uh, you know, the head of a man, scruffy beard and everything else, but also with the breasts and a dress. And so it's just kind of it's crazy to me to think that, like, things have really come such a far way and in how people are kind of dressing and and all that kind of stuff and uh, what's kind of acceptable or whatever. And so uh, I don't know. I don't even know if I have a point there, but just had to point that out. Oh, and the star is on the knee or the thigh. Mm -hmm. Knee is Capricorn. Nice catch, Cody. Right. Yeah. Being an underworld thing. Totally. (laughs) The logic fan. Maybe it's just bad art. (laughs) I don't know, man. I couldn't make that. I'm pretty impressed with it. (laughs) Um, And Liam says the Cobra comes out of a vessel for the Kali dance. Mm. I did not know that. That's interesting, too. Guys in the chat are just crushing. Thank you for all the contributions. Okay. So now this one, it gets really interesting. So this is the. Uh, Etruscan Shuri. It looks like Suri, but I think it's when you see that um, that first letter is it looks like an M to us, <laughs> but it's actually kind of more like the, the Greek Sigma. If you've ever seen the Greek Sigma, it looks kind of like an E. 
So it's mm. that, but tilted on its side, but it's the same letter. Okay. Now, so, you know, and it's Boustrophodon, it's right to left. So when you see that Etruscan uh, writing, it, you're reading it the way you'd read Hebrew. So that S is probably aspirated more like a shush sh sound. I, they they think, you know, Etruscan etymology, they're eyeballing it. <laughs> I don't think they really know. But Suri or Shuri, maybe they just wanted it to be sure instead of sir, uh, even though they weren't sure. Because it makes it sound more unique and different to the other deities that share a similar name to that. You know, you got to. So I'll just read through some of this right here about Suri or Shuri. He's thought to be the god of volcanoes and fire, both of which are associated with the underworld. He was the Chthonic god of the sun and light and an oracular god with mm -hmm. powers over health and plague. And he was a god of volcanic lightning. Suri was depicted as male and female uh, simultaneously. Some depictions he was one, some he was the other. Sacred animals are the wolf and the goat. And you see in this fresco to the right, he's got a wolf headdress on. Um, Suri is known to the Romans as Apollo Seranus. Seranus, which is... You have Sir, which is black. It means literally black in the Etruscan, but also is a word like uh, to the Phoenicians, who the Etruscans and Phoenicians were potentially the same people. Uh, Dylan's done a lot of work to show the high probability of that. And so their capital city is actually Sir. It's spelled T Y R E. Most people will say it's Tyre, but they pronounce that as Sir. So there's a long tradition of naming the naming towns and cities after the deity, huge tradition. And I even think like Surrey, if you'd consider the RL switch is also like Solly. And there's mm. a, like a Higgins and Anacalypsis. He has this whole section about all the different towns in the, the middle and near East that are Solomon named Solomon. Like the mm. solemn King Solomon of the Old Testament, so I think it's very possible that the Suri and Soli are phonetically referring to the same thing potentially. And then, yeah, Apollo. So the Romans called him Apollo Suranus, and Annus is the year, right? So I consider that to be maybe the the lord of the, the lord of the year or the black god of the year and i know you're aware that there's tons and tons of these underworld gods that are black in symbolism it's a major right component so yeah. that, that that's in the name and so suri was a son of tenia which is the etruscan jupiter the top g top god and he's a twin to artume sounds a lot like artemis artemis is a twin and, uh, you know, honorable mention to the Norse Jotun Surtur, the second oldest being in creation and the one that brings the Ragnarok to conclusion. And Surya, which is the sun in the Hindu mythos. And I just have a, a little passage from the Volupspa, the, the Norse Volus, Volupsa, where it says, Surtur moves from the south with the scathe of branches. There shines from his sword, the son of gods of the slain. Mm. So this is a huge gravy portal, this guy. 
Yeah, I agree. You know, it's just occurring to me, this really isn't something that I've spent too much time digging into, but how perfect the volcano is as an underworld symbol. Mm-hmm. It makes so much sense. You know, uh, mountains in general have been associated with being uh, gateways to other places. You know, whether you ascend up the mountain and then you're closer to the heavens, you become God or closer to the gods or whatever, or literally there being some sort of cave within the mountain. And even um, my copy of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the cover is just a mountain, right? And so when I think of the mountain, any mountain really, um, I associate it with the world mountain, essentially, right? And then this could be the potential axis way to the other side. But the fact that the volcano actually has this opening up top, and obviously it does what it does, you know, volcanic eruptions, but I'm kind of just appreciating that about this, you know, the volcano being like a really, really perfect symbol for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, it kind of, you know, comes to mind Pompeii. We're talking mm. about the psycho pomp and there's this ah. huge story of Pompeii. I don't know. Uh, yeah. There's probably a there, there, there. Definitely. Definitely. So I have uh, this page open that I want to kind of skim through and read some stuff off of. I'll do my best. I <laughs> It's in Italian, but my browser can sort of do a decent translation to it. So because mm-hmm. I think that this is a super important deity, you know, and worth really worth um, fleshing out a little more. And so I'm going to read some interesting stuff from here. Uh, the center of. Saranus's cult was Monte Sorate or so- Soracte, which is almost like an it's an anagram for Socrates, Mount Socrates. <laughs> and the uh okay. <laughs> in the village of Saint Oreste, which is in one of the cult centers, a legend was handed down that on the mountain you could meet, which is the Mount uh Mount Soracte, you could meet a frightening goat with two heads, or potentially, according to a variant, a goat with a head that turned backwards. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so this sounds like, you know, to me that sounds like uh, some Janus symbolism, the god who looks at the transition between the old year and the new. That could be part of it. Yeah, for sure. So the god Saranus worshipped on the sacred mount of Soracte was identified or confused at times with the with Dis or Dis Pater, the Roman god of the underworld, and was a solar god um, defined, in fact, presumably defined by the Etruscans with the synonym of Tinea, Calusna, Jupiter, and Pharaoh. Um, just going to scroll here. Yeah, according to... Some scholars, the priests of Saranus were called the Herpi Sarani, that is the wolves of Saranus. And I want to point out how the uh, Herpes or Herpas, the priests, the wolf priests, you know, that's very close to Horus, especially mm. when that P sound, that P shape is the Greek and the Etruscan letter R is actually shaped like RP. Makes me think that maybe that. That word Horus could be more connected to the idea of wolves than we thought. Mm. And <laughs> during their ceremonies, these wolves of Saranus would walk on burning coals 
holding the interior of sacrificed goats. So they walk on burning coals holding goat guts. Wow. (laughs) And there seems to be a relationship between burning embers and the sun burning and drying up at the end of the year. Oh, nice. Like a coal, you know, the way a coal is hot and it gets less and less hot. Yeah. So the the Lupercai, like Lupercalia religion in Rome, probably is derived from these priests. So they're a fire cult and, you know, the worship of the wolf connects to the sun god. Very interesting. Um, <laughs> I wanted to, where did I find this part? I'm going to keep reading. Okay, here we go. The places of Serranus were often home to important oracular sites. On the eastern slopes of the mountain, there were, in fact, deep wells from which still emerge today condensation mists that many Roman authors described as the vapors that were proper to the cult of Apollo Serrano. It seems the intoxication of the priests or priestesses from these vapors allowed them to enter a state of trance and speak uh, as the mouth of the god. I'm having to kind of make this better English as I read it. A legend tells that at a time of the first sacrifice on the Mount Soracte, a pack of gigantic wolves stole the meat of the sacrificial sacrifice victims and fled through the forest. The courageous men who chased them to uh, found a cave that they entered that emanated the infernal vapors. And these vapors killed almost all humans, but they did not intoxicate the wolves. It's really interesting. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, we're getting to that Pythian Apollo Delphi thing with the, uh, these vapors. So it was, I want to find this part about them being okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, the wolf priests of Apollo Serenus, they like wolves had to live on robberies. And during the ceremonies of the god, they walked barefoot on the burning coals without feeling pain, which is something that is done in India. Mm-hmm. Um, they lit up pine wood and expanded their embers by walking barefoot without feeling pain three times, jumping on embers in a di- like they are dancing, and thus bringing the meats, gifts, and sacrificial alterings to the altar of the god. So this was a summer solstice ritual. What I think is really interesting. I'll leave it at that. But what I think that is really interesting about them is that they subside, like their subsistence was robbery. <laughs> you know, these are, <laughs> right. this is like a priesthood, but they're like how they got their resources was they would jack people, man, like a wolf, like a wolf pack. It's crazy right. stuff, man. Yeah, no, absolutely. Exactly. It reminds this me. This may be like the origins of werewolves, man, because like it says right. here, that the cultists dressed in wolf skins and were able to quote become wolves themselves because of the result of a curse or they were forced by dark powers to become wolves and that they also had some kind of pharmacopoeia that allowed them to rub some substance on the soles of their feet, a drug that prevented the action of fire. Yeah. That's all Hmm. it has on this page, but you know, it gets some interesting stuff when you translate other languages. 
Definitely. Yeah, no, the robbery thing, I that that's fascinating for sure. Um, it just reminds me too of the mercurial thing with uh being associated with thieves and tricksters and, and things like that, right? And so here, right, you have on your slide, Surrey was a male and a female at once. So again, mercurial. The one thing I'm thinking about too is the sacred animals, the wolf and the goat. Um, there probably are, do you know of like many cultures that associate the wolf with uh with like a solar power versus say like a lunar power or something along those lines. Cause I usually do think about it as being more lunar in nature. Um, you know, and then the goat to, um, very much, I would say, I mean, I always think of like Capricorn, the sea goat, right. And then, uh, kind of this Saturnian sort of influence with the goat, but not so much the sun. Um, so that's something that I'm, I'm kind of chewing on right now, I guess with both of those figures, both of those creatures. Well, the only one that I can think of off the top of my head is in the prose Edda, there's a wolf that chases the sun as the sun rides her chariot across the sky. Mm, and okay. like part of Ragnarok is that the wolf catches up to the sun and eats it. Right. And it's Which not means the same, that it's kind I don't of think like that's it's the a... same wolf as Fenrir either. Fenrir is a different wolf that's part of that whole story. Right, right. Which means to me, symbolically, if it's eating the sun, then um, it seems like it would be the opposing energy, you know, or complementary sort of energy, I think, is how I tend to look at it, potentially. The other aspect of wolf is that the etymology of words pertaining to wolf in the Latin languages basically has to do with the idea of flow or running. And even wolf in English backwards is flow. Oh, dude. Excellent. And so I, I had not made that connection. When you consider the water and river symbolism that is for sure solar and related to sun symbolism, you know, the life giving properties of water and the life giving properties and healing properties of water and and sunlight, then it starts to maybe make sense because wolves and foxes are in this as well. Volpes, you know, they're they're part of this symbolic idea wrapped up in this idea of of flowing and running continually because wolves have this ability to like they can just marathon run forever <laughs> they have this endurance to them that's incredible and that you know is more of a solar thing versus a lunar thing in the sense that the sun has a consistency to it you know yeah it changes throughout the course of a year it does tire and get weaker but like you know Throughout the course of a day, the sun is the same heat like kind right. of all the time. It's not it's always the same disc. Right. So yeah. and it and it flows continually and it's not quite as seemingly as erratic in its behavior as the moon might appear. Mm -hmm. So I think the flow idea gives you uh, gives you maybe where the solar connection is at. I like it. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, I can't get over the priests of Saranus being uh, bandits and robbers. <laughs> like that, if these are some of the origins of the modern priesthood, it, it's starting to make a lot of sense. <laughs> they just figured out more sophisticated ways to rob people yeah. that don't yeah, exactly. require them having to risk their neck. So funny. Right. Nice, dude. This was a good one. Yeah, right. I, that yeah, one. Yeah. That one's really good. I mean, all the etymology that goes with Shuri or Suri is huge. So the Etruscan AD or is uh, actually an epithet of Shuri. 
So whenever mm. we talk about Hades, the Greek Hades or the Roman Pluto is actually like that. That name is der- derived from an epithet of Surrey. So mm. Hades, like when we talk about Surrey, we're talking about Hades, talking about Pluto. You can see the the way it was spelled in Etruscan is without the H, but the Greeks wanted uh, the H as a letter for, you know, it wasn't part of their alphabet originally. They might speak that way with that heavy aspirate at the beginning of words that start with a vowel, but it didn't have its own letter. It was considered more of like a breath thing that they might mark with an accent. So that, you know, applies to the Etruscans as well. I think Etruscan is older than Greek. The mainstream thinks that it's the other way around. Etruscan comes from Greek. Who knows? It wasn't there. But the fact remains that this isn't that Hades, that name is derived from an epithet of Surrey. So we're really still talking about Surrey here (laughs) when we talk about Hades. And he's shown often this Etruscan AT is shown in tomb paintings with his consort Persephone, which that's Persephone. You know, it's this practically the same name as Persephone. So his consort, the myth of Persephone, that should be hopefully already people have done their homework on that, know about that. Depictions of AT show him enthroned with a wolf cap. And another version of him is the Etruscan underworld wolf deity Kalu. He is associated with, so as Hades, I should say, uh, especially, he's always been associated with volcanic areas, steam vents, sulfurous vapors. Well, the sulfurous vapors were back in the whole Pythian Apollo, who we Mm -hmm. now can see is Apollo Serranus, who is Shuri. And this is the oracular god presiding over the underground prophecy centers like Delphi. So the underworld realm and the god who rules it often share a name i wanted to point that out mm, you know ha- right? hades and hades hell and hell in the norse erebus is the greek mythology primeval god of darkness who gives birth to the light god ether and erebus is also the realm of uh, the underworld and interestingly tolkien used that name erebus as the uh i in my opinion i'm guessing but if you've ever seen the hobbit or read the hobbit the Lonely Mountain, which is very <laughs> polar world tree type of symbol. Um, the 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 realm inside of the mountain and under the mountain, you know, they call Thorin Oakenshield, the king under the mountain, is called Erebor. So it's an underworld concept right there. So it's interesting to me that Tolkien, who is so, I'm sure, educated in all the, the European mythos, interesting to me that he puts his Erebor or the underworld inside and under the lonely mountain the world tree you know it's in the trunk of the tree inside it (laughs) you know if if the trunk is the lunar symbolism or the repository as you were saying that you thought it might be uh, then you know the underworld being inside the mountain that's interesting you know i think tolkien might be onto something there yeah man no no exactly and uh as surter the, the version of the Norse, the, uh, you know, not that Surtur, I'm not asserting that Surtur is the uh, god of the underworld. That's hell or Hela. But as the underworld symbolism has to do with the destruction and then regeneration, 
that's what Surtur is about in the macrocosm as Ragnarok goes on. And he's got his wolf ally Fenrir and then the wolf that chases the sun and consumes it at the end of Ragnarok. And I wanted to point out Romulus and Remus, mythical founders of foam, of foam, Rome. <laughs> <laughs> they suckle at the teat of the giant wolf. And then right here on, on the right, I have Plut, the Roman Pluto depicted as Serapis. And if you notice his headdress or his hat, that crown yeah. is the fortress symbolism. So that's the same symbol that Kronos and Rhea both share. Rhea is syncretized with Persephone, the Etruscan Persephone, for sure syncretized with her. And as uh, Pluto, as Serapis, well, where does Serapis's name come from? We have that Sir again, as in Shuri. And Apis is the Apis bull, uh, which we know we haven't talked about bull symbolism a lot here, but it is, of course, in the mix with this system. And with Pluto as Serapis, you have the uh, Cerberus, the three-headed dog who guards the underworld. So more of that dog-wolf symbolism with underworld symbolism. Right, right, exactly. Dude, I would actually love to know if you have done research on those fortress uh, caps or those, you know, whatever they are, <laughs> hats or the, the the headdress or whatever they got going on up there. I mean, I've noticed them for a long time, but I've never actually done a uh, personal dive on it. Have you? I wouldn't say I could tell you all about it right now, but I I look at it like. It, so you know all the versions of the god where they like or the epithets where it's like the strong god like orion the strong hunter mm-hmm. it's all about you know strength hercules all that i think that maybe the symbol of the fortress represents strength mm. that's my take on it you know the and the the latin word for strength is fortis which has 40 in it so there may be you know just spitball in here, but that may be related to the Venusian cycle, the 40 weeks in the womb and uh, the, you know, the cycle of 40 that Venus has going on as well. Right. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I always think of um, there's in the Thoth deck, the four of discs, I believe it's called power if I'm not mistaken, but it's like a little fortress sort of thing. It kind of goes to what you're saying right now with the 40 symbolism. And stuff like that. And so, uh, again, four of discs, but it does. It seems like, um, you know, that I, I could see the strength connection for sure. I kind of think of Saturn as Saturn being like related to walls and partitions and things of that sort, keeping oh, things out, but also yeah. keeping things out. Yeah, boundaries. But it's so striking and it's so, um, I don't know, there's a novelty to it that whenever I see it, um, it obviously doesn't look like something anybody would actually wear. And so it always catches right. my attention, but I, I've never, you know, looked into it myself. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Saturn as boundaries and partitions because, Hey, wait, that's Mercury Hermes job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like right. Boundaries and, and walls and partitions. And that's a cycle pump thing. So right. you bringing that up, you know, we, we get this idea from our Disney thing and, the fact that the planets are named after these these gods currently, even though they didn't used to be, that uh, they're all different, but they do all kind of collapse into the same guy. 
at the end of the day. Totally. I, I'm seeing that more and more and more with basically everything. Ever since I started hanging out with you, dude, that, that's what's <laughs> been going on. Uh, but yeah, so I just looked up the card. So uh, four big. of discs right there. So that is actually power. And it's actually the sun in Capricorn. So wow. simple fortress, right? And then it has the uh, four elemental glyphs on each sort of tower and then of course fortress right and then the the number four so just thought i would point that out there but yeah there's a turning connection here strength and power go hand in hand so it's like crowley knew what i was talking about there yeah exactly exactly (laughs) yeah and like you know with the psychopomp thing there's the the planet Venus, the luminary that we call Venus, I think is part of that mix too, because it's there as the morning and evening star guiding the sun out of the underworld and into the underworld. True. Yeah, exactly right. 100%. Makes sense. And then also too, I just think of the Venus glyph as well. And then all you have to do is add a little horns to it and then it becomes the Mercury hmm. glyph, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think... Like, I really do think it's all the same guy who is a triple god or a triple goddess, hermaphroditic. And then all of these characters and all the attributions given to the luminaries are more about like parts of that one being, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that are you have chakras or you have like different colors make up one image, one painting. Totally see it that way. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, once again, pointing out that staff here uh, with Pluto as Serapis and the world axis sort of thing going on um, that I pick up. So and there's we that as well. Do more on Serapis someday. Yeah, yeah. That was like the god of syncretism. <laughs> oh, okay. Or like it was the Romans syncretism of a bunch of different things, you know. Like, I think, honestly, I think there have been people doing what we're doing right now for ages, (laughs) like finding all the connections, bringing all the threads together. And then sometimes maybe they tried to just make a simplified religion out of what they had figured out, taking the best parts of everything. Even reading books that are kind of um, like syncretist sort of books, I guess, you know, uh, pre-internet, man, it's really impressive to see that people were making these connections before they had Google, before they had all this other stuff, you know, they're really serious about it. And they spent a lot of time at the library or they had a library themselves or something along these lines. But I'm always impressed reading uh, earlier authors and how much they were actually able to um, compare between different deities and make these different types of connections and stuff before you had, you know, anything close to what we have today with technology and all of that. But, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. People have been doing this for a long time. Would you mind continuing to share some thoughts? I got a voice message from Gabe to play on the show, and I just need to tweak the audio so it's a little higher. Say words. Entertain people. Kill the dead air. (laughs) (laughs) Right on, right on. I can definitely do that. Okay, so, um, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about literally is the scale itself because we're in Libra season. And so Libra is the seventh sign uh of this system that we have 
And so it's very interesting that the seventh sign would be the sign that brings us into the underworld, in my opinion, right? There's kind of this completion with the number seven. Um, even the seventh card of the major arcana is uh, the chariot, right? Cycles. And funny enough, I actually, I'm starting to see the chariot and the charioteer as a psychopomp figure as well in the tarot. I think there's several probably, but you know, he has that chariot, he has that vehicle. It's not uncommon for him to have that kind of North star on top of his head. That's more of like a rider weight sort of thing. Um, but Libra being the scales, right? And so I've talked about twin pillar symbolism a lot. So Boaz, Joaquin, Black, White, uh, the twins of Gemini, you know, you're going to see these twin pillars all over Freemasonry and in the Kabbalah, you know, Kabbalistic traditions, rather, in the tarot, uh, Jewish synagogues, things like that. I always bring up the fact that there is a middle pillar or central pillar, right? The central axis. You look at the Kabbalistic tree of life, the central pillar, the central pole extends above and below the other two pillars or poles, the other two columns, right? And so when I see Libra, the scales of Libra, when I think about the scales, I can't not think of the two pillars symbolically kind of representing the pans, but then that central pillar, the middle way actually being the vertical axis that makes a scale even work, you know? So this is something that I've kind of been chewing on lately. And uh, a lot of the material that I've been reading regarding scale symbolism related to the world axis. And I sent you a link to a scan of uh, one of my resources that at some point we can get into, but if you're ready with slick dude, um, have at it. If you're able to adjust sure, it, or if yeah. you need me to talk more, I can do that too. No, I got that ready. And if you, any point want me to show one of those four images you sent me, just let me know. I, uh, I have, I added those to the end of the slideshow so I can easily pull them up. Right on. Nice. Nice. Yeah. When, when Gabe has a little message for us here though. Cool. All right, everybody, much love and respect. I'm having all kinds of technology, uh, <laughs> fun and games. We'll just say that. Uh, I want to say about the psychopomp and the seeing beyond. It comes in many forms and many shades. That's a very important word, the shades. Hades is the Lord of the Shades. And so the spectrum of seeing and receiving and uh, uh, receptivity. Uh, we could just simply use the metaphor of the rainbow which <clears throat> the spectrum of possibilities and capabilities uh, are way more numerous than just seven. Uh, but uh, the gates to Hades are numbered as seven, seven streams. And those are the two ears, the two nostrils, the two eyes, and the mouth. And there are uh, some people... Uh, come in and out of the unseen realm with much more affluence than others, while a lot of people need the book cope. A lot of people need the appeal, external appeal to authority. A lot of people need university, university. Um, and I just think it is uh, glorious to be in a circle of friends who acknowledge that some people got it and some people don't. And, you know, I don't hold it against them. They don't hold it against me. We all uh, lean on each other for these capabilities and skill sets, uh, because that's what makes this place 
just so savory, so delicious. All right, I'm going to shut up. Uh, I love all of you and uh, wish me luck. This phone is, uh, yeah, it's putting me to the test. It's going to be a, it's going to be a good one. All right. Much respect. I'm guessing everyone else could hear that. Mario said he couldn't hear it, but I'm just glad to hear from Gabe. Um, He's, you know, he's alive and well, he's just fighting the, (laughs) fighting the phone right now, buddy. If you're still watching the stream, just get with me because uh, we need to get together tomorrow because you and I had something planned that we were going to record tomorrow. So let's, let's work on, you know, decombobulating your, your web browser on your phone. We'll get it figured out, dude. I've got, I got your back. I'm, I'm a pretty uh, solid IT guy. (laughs) I was looking at, I picked up this random book at Staples the other day that it's funny that this kind of thing is so getting to the mainstream to the point that it's at Staples, but it was a book where it went through every day of the year and told you what it, you know, the generalization of what a person born on that specific day would be like. Oh, so it was nice. very astrology, you know, oriented, yeah, but, yeah. you know, kind of pop astrology simplified. But it was funny because one of the things that it said, a uh, person born on my day, 322, would either be like a researcher or a, or an IT guy. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my two jobs. I was an IT guy and now I do this. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Pretty if specific. It's, uh... If it's not too much trouble, uh, is there a way to encapsulate what, what Slick just said? And uh, did it have to do with the placenta by chance or was it something else? Incredibly, no. Oh, I think that, that's okay. So I, I can't super well encapsulate it. You know, no worries speaks, at all. I totally only, get it. Only he can speak for himself. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> but the, the cat or the, uh, the chat, they're getting it. <laughs> right on, right on. That's what matters the most. <laughs> Talking about the sh- the shades being a big part of this underworld conversation, you know, ah, reflections, okay. you know, because a shade is kind of like your reflection. That's mm. that was what I I took from it. And the placenta is part of that mix, man. I mean, we haven't I'm surprised we haven't touched on it yet. I know we would have if Gabe was in the convo, but the uh, twin symbolism of the psychopomp it, in the physical, in your mi- microcosm of your personal life, that is your placenta. When you're born, it's what ferries you. It's the boat you rode in on, you know, mm-hmm. it protects you. It guard, it uh, guards you in a way by keeping you alive. So to me, if there is some sort of holy guardian, holy guardian angel that is in, you know, I think it's an inner space, but sort of conceptually externalized in the fact that it's a, a being that has its own independent consciousness that's watching over you. I think that it's the spirit of the placenta and it is your twin. You know, I've talked Mm -hmm. about this a lot, of course, but you on the show before, but I think it's bears repeating every time is appropriate that (laughs) consider the possibility that your placenta has a spirit, just like any other sentient being, because it has the exact same DNA and genetics as you, you know, Uh, as you and your mom, actually. Right. It shares that. So if it was just cut away prematurely, burned as medical hazardous waste or made into makeup or sold to pharmaceutical companies to do weird experiments on or eaten by the reptilian space pope or whatever, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's 
traumatizing to the spirit of that entity. And there's a reclamation that you can make to be empowered by this spiritual twin rather than potentially held back. Like I look at it like devil on your shoulder, angel on your shoulder, and you can, mm. it's worth, you know, it's worth everybody exploring that for themselves. And Oh, Mario dropped. I bet he'll be right back. We're still okay. Yeah. Still live. <laughs> yeah. Get, the gravy gets too thick when we talk placenta and the the gremlins don't like it. Here I am. <laughs> <laughs> He's here. You yeah. know, at least that was an easy dropout. It wasn't like, uh, you know, a painful one. It was just quick That's and over true. with. I agree. I agree. But no, the placenta <laughs> stuff, it, it really is the real deal, you know? And, um, when I first came across you guys talking about it, it really did blow my mind and it fits so nicely with everything that Michelle has learned about the placenta as well. You know, um, being part of several live births and, and working with the placenta and seeing how much of a difference it makes for mom and, and for the baby and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, never ever, uh, I, I I know I said it as a joke or whatever, but I always love it when he brings it up and he's so passionate about it, Gabe. <laughs> so I'm down. Yeah, I don't think I would have come. I don't think I would have got it without Gabe. I really wouldn't. I don't think so. I appreciate him for that, too. It's like I said, always bears repeating whenever there's an appropriate moment that it comes up. Totally. Because what's more important than your entry into this world, apart from maybe your exit? There's not much. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that for a fact with biofield tuning. 90% of sessions were just working out how whatever the story was when they were born or when their mom was pregnant, how that conditioned them in ways that they thought was just their personality I deal right. with it all the time. And it can be, you know, majorly empowering to figure out how that, how your birth story affected you. But for sure, I have a for technician sure. for that. So, you know, hit me up. Let's do some tuning people out there. Now we're moving into the Hindu pantheon to look at Yama. You know much about Yama, Mario? I don't, to be honest. Uh, I've seen the artwork before, and already there's several things that I'm intrigued with. <laughs> so this will be a nice little dive. Yeah, what do you think? You know, just taking a glance at them over here. Well, you know, um, I have been said, have been said, I've been saying that uh, poles and holes, you know, I think a lot of things symbolically go back to poles and holes. And here you have a pole on one hand, on the right hand, and then on the left-hand side you have arguably you know um what looks like a hole at the end of whatever it is yama's holding <laughs> so to me that's yeah. very interesting kind of reminds me of the noose again too it does yeah i was thinking about that actually so they look very complementary right that that column um and then i'm seeing that yama is sitting on top of uh what i would interpret as probably is that a water buffalo um, which to me, I believe water buffalo symbolism really, really? translates. I think it might be a goat. Is it but really? Might... Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think I assumed it was a goat because it's all goats and dogs with these underworld and psychopomp guys. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. But perhaps. maybe you're right. I, you might be right. Yeah. Um, so we'll see, I guess. Um, I kind of looked at it as like a water buffalo and I know a lot of water buffalo symbolism is kind of hooked up with essentially, um, you know, cow, uh, bull symbolism. I just wouldn't uh, have thought of that, but that is native to the Indian subcontinent. So it could be, it could be. Right. Right. I mean, 
I just just graphically, visually, aesthetically, you know, that's the other thing that kind of is right now just speaking to me, just the amount of detail, right? All of the different figures that are around Yama. Um, I'm kind of zoomed in here, but it almost looks as though Yama has uh, fangs, perhaps. I, I could yeah. be seeing that wrong, but yeah, it looks like fangs up top. Uh, its ear even looks slightly pointy. Um, I just love the uh, ornamentation with like the necklaces and, and the things that are kind of wrapped around this figure. Um, kind of interesting too. even the fact that like it's wearing like a it looks like a it's a sandal, but it looks like there's something more going on with all of that. So I'm just appreciating all of this stuff. But, you know, using the water buffalo as a throne um, kind of reminds me of the Hierophant card a little bit. The Thoth version of the Hierophant card, um, he, the Pope, is sitting literally on a bowl, and he is known as being the bridge, the bridge builder, the ultimate bridge builder, uh, Pontifex Maximus, I believe, essentially translates to the ultimate bridge builder. And so that's kind of what we're talking about here, building bridges to the other side, um, being a gateway, you know, to go uh, to the great beyond and everything else. Um, Related to, by the way, with poles and holes, keys and locks you know i see very similar symbolism between all of these different things in uh japanese language um mountain goat is called a yama yaga <laughs> oh okay gotcha <laughs> it's just a fun detail you know yeah yeah well maybe it's important i am impressed with this comment from booty yoga chanting yama 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 Turns into Maya, Maya, Maya. Ooh. ooh. Interesting. Yeah. I like Yama that. and Maya. That isn't, I mean, it's an anagram. Wow. That's pretty interesting. I, I think that is for sure relevant. <laughs> so Yama or Yama Raja, deity of death, justice, Dharma, and the underworld. Dharma is important because it's sort of like this idea. It's a nebulous idea, but it has to do with the order like in society and harmony of, of the world that comes about from basically like behaving properly, you know, listening to your conscience or doing what your soul is authentically here to do, how that creates order. So Dharma is an idea that I think is very relative, like uh, related to Ma'at and Buddha is a Dharma God. So wanted to point that out. Um, so Yama, God of the underworld in both Hindu and Buddhism religions, presides over the dispensation of law and punishment of sinners. In Sanskrit, his name can also mean twin. The word Yama can also mean twin. So we're back into the twin. <laughs> He's the son yeah. of the sun. So Yama is the son of Surya, the sun, and his brother is Manu, twin brother, I should say, the uh, progenitor of mankind. So Manu is like the Adam figure of Hinduism. There's, we've covered this before, but like Sir William Jones was one of the first um, Westerners who brought us the idea of Man, Minu or Manu, but all of these other lawgivers throughout cultures from King Minos of Crete to Manus of the uh, Nori, the Northern Norse mythos. And mm. there's tons of examples of Menu, Manu, Mino, Minus, this M to N phonetic. So, <laughs> oh, 
That's interesting. Buddha Yoga says Rama, 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 Rama becomes Mara, 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 Mara. Wow. Mm. Rama and Mara, Yama and Maya. That is fascinating. Man, it's like that. There's like a whole new level that unlocks when you start playing with the sound element. You know, yeah. this is words. That is yep. freaking interesting. Mara is a, a demon in uh, <laughs> the Hindu mythology, but is also a word relating to sea. You know, Mara, Maru, mm. your Mary figure. Maya is also the uh, mother of Buddha, mother of Hermes, mother of Mercury. So that is so interesting that, you know, the God, the God and the goddess, their name blur into each other when you chant it. That makes so much sense because it's the androgen being, <laughs> you know, like where's the beginning and where's the end. If you're just repeating it endlessly, you no longer it, as, you know, like almost like the ohm, there's no beginning or no end. And thank you for that booty yoga. That is going to stick with me. That is so good. Yeah, that's really cool. So Yama is the guardian of the South, the Southern direction. The Southern direction is actually highly relevant to this underworld idea. And I know there's more examples of it, but the ones that I was able to verify for sure off the top of, you know, in a quick, <laughs> in my, in my uh, constrained time today with my power going out and everything, Brahma and Valkyries. Valkyries are worth more deep analysis, honestly. I wasn't able to, you know, include a full slide on Valkyries, but we we got we did get our whole Vanth character, so that helps, but we should do more in looking into Valkyries. Thank you for this super chat. Marty Leeds. Nice. Talked about you earlier. What's up, Marty? And Liam with the super chat. Thank you guys. Awesome guys. Thanks for the support. So, yeah, that idea of the South, I'm kind of curious your thoughts on that. Um, but I'll just finish reading the slide real quick. The Zendavesta has a being called Yima, who is a guardian of the, who is an underworld god. So Yima and Yama. Uh, Iran's pretty far from India, <laughs> where Zoroastrianism is from. Both Yama and Yima guard their domain with two dogs that have four eyes. Mm. So kind of similar to the three-headed dog of Cerberus. On a Javanese myth, Yama is a god of doorways, specifically, like Hermes Terminus. Nice, nice. Real quick, Jolotl, is that a dog by chance? Um, yeah, the Valkyries and then Jolotl? Okay, yeah, yeah. Because I think, if I'm not mistaken, people have been saying these days, I'm not sure if you're uh, following this thread or not, but that this dog is actually the inspiration for Anubis. If things have flipped around, if this is really the old world and then what we're told as the old world is actually the new world that, uh, this dog relates to a dog that is here in the Americas, a black dog and looks an awful lot like Anubis. It's really fascinating. It's ears and everything, uh, very much related to the underworld. But, um, the thing that I was going to say that kind of sticks out to me is just I know I, I get um, in this sort of like lane with every single sign where that's like what I'm thinking about. But up here, you're saying uh, uh, Yama is a deity of death, right? Um, obviously, after death is the uh, transition over to the underworld. And Libra very much symbolizes that justice also justice relates and judgment. 
justice judgment lady justice you know very much related to libra uh dharma being like a cosmic law sort of thing there's a lot to be said about laws as they relate to libra and then um there's a i believe saturn is exalted in libra if i'm not mistaken or something along these lines um but when i think of law cosmic law natural law whatever you want to say universal law to me it's all about balance and trying to maintain balance right and uh, I think things are balanced here personally, you know, on a much larger scale, my humanness sometimes disagrees with that, but I think on a large scale, I think things are balanced here as they should be. Um, and so to me, this idea of Libra and the scales definitely is present whenever you're talking about any kind of law. And then you say the dispension of law and punishment of sinners, you know, obviously that's the other side of having the book thrown at you. It would be the punishment that's going to be doled out for your crime or whatever so more uh libra symbolism is just coming to mind with everything um yeah the twin thing obviously you mentioned that balance 15 libra 15 oh nice there you go gematria's got it dude the english language is so magical it annoys me when people say it's, it's a slave language like this is like the <laughs> most magical language ever when you have the septenary gematria that Marty teaches, it proves it. So balance equals 15 and Libra equals 15. Excellent. I can't say I'm surprised, but I am impressed. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, the dog symbolism, too. Just want to mention, you know, on the uh, moon card, usually see two dogs. Usually see two or three dogs howling at the moon. In the Thoth deck, you're going to see two Anubis figures, and then there's smaller black dogs right underneath them. Anubis being the head of a dog, as I just mentioned. And then, um, you know, they're, they're kind of right there with those two pillars of the two towers on the side, right? This gateway that you even mentioned earlier regarding the moon. And then Yama being the guardian of the southern direction. Yeah, that's really interesting, for sure. Um, and so to me... There isn't, I, I mean, to be honest with you, dude, it's like, what do these directions mean? I know I'm quick to always mention the North and, you know, the centeredness of that and everything else. And then now though, with just kind of my cosmology of like, what is South, you know, uh, is it just, is it literally the whole entire like, um, perimeter of earth, <laughs> you know, and it's really going all, it's just every way opposite of North, you know, um, is that what these cultures believed Did they have a different sort of um, idea in mind? But obviously when most people think of North and South um, just in their mind's eye, you think of North up and you think of South down, you know? So to me, just with that, uh, the underworld connection with the South uh, does make sense too. Hmm. Yeah. Weren't ancient maps drawn with East on the top. I'm not sure. That's the other thing, too, that there's been switches and fuckery. Yeah, I feel like if East was on the top, then that would mean North is left on mm -hmm. the map. It's, it's weird. You know, mm -hmm. like, is, uh, is the left-hand path talking about going North? <laughs> Don't yes, know. dude. Yeah. No, man. Absolutely. I, I've, I'm reading material that's literally about that. So interesting. You know, especially... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about this, Scott. The neon blue tesseract on top of the Mercy Hospital in Springfield. I don't know about that. I'll I'll take a look next time I'm passing by there. Interesting. Thanks for the super chat, man, and for the uh food for thought. Hospital symbolism is uh 
you know, this is the same cult that's been running the hospital show for or the the, the healing, so-called, the medical stuff forever. Since he brought it up, do you think the hospitals are doing anything with these souls that are passing in their facilities? Yes, dude. Right? <laughs> not the hospital, maybe not like the employees of the hospital. Um, this is where I'm going to sound crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think that, <clears throat> okay, I think that if like you leave your body and you don't go into the light, or you're afraid to join, return to source. You, you know, you deny Christ. <laughs> you don't go with the psychopomp, the friendly psychopomp. Um, I think that there are what you call wizards or dark occultists, whatever. You know, people that have uh, people with bad intention that figured out how this place worked, and you know but didn't want to be subservient, didn't want to be, didn't want to join the collective, the the light of source or whatever. I know this is all very conjectural, but I think that there are disincarnate humans that remain conscious of themselves and retain some level semblance of energy and memory of who they are and ability, you know, practiced in the astral, practiced in projection and out of body while they were alive so that when they died, they were able to hold coherently in their field, um, you know, hold their, hold their identity intact essentially without a body. I think that mm. that's a thing, you know, the word demon actually is from the Greek ancient Greek demonia, which is just a word re referring to the souls of the dead souls of dead humans. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the also the they called it the manes or the menes. And that's what uh, Hermes was the guide to guide to the manes. And interesting because that's spelled the same as manes, like back to that horse symbolism. Ah, uh, right. <laughs> so, interesting. so I think that it's possible that at these hospitals, even though the people that work there might not have anything to do with it or know about it, because people die there in hospitals and extreme suffering and and fear, mm, mm -hmm. you know, right. I think that there could be, uh, beings waiting for someone to pop out of their body so that they can persuade them to not go into the light or not go with the angel or whatever. Gotcha. And I think that on, you know, I think that in the astral realm or whatever you want to say, like the non-physical component of, of our reality, the hungry ghost idea is real, is super real. And that, you know, cause I see this in tuning a lot, actually, I've, I can't without intending to, I don't even want to, but it just shows up that somebody's ancestor is hanging around them and influencing them negatively. <laughs> mm. And we have to deal with that. So I think that there's like a whole corporation type struck hierarchy, you know, in a, in a, as a below, as above, so below sense, I think that the deceased humans with ill intent have persuaded or enslaved a bunch of other deceased humans of lower power, uh, lower mm. consciousness into essentially operating as like, um, you know, loose harvesters. <laughs> I don't know how gotcha. else to describe it. Yeah. So that's yeah. a whole nother conversation, but there's, I think there's something to that. I think hospitals may be designed by, I think somebody somewhere up the chain knows that 
that there's a big energy harvesting potential or like soul harvesting potential uh, in making sure most people die in this one spot in a bad way. (laughs) I'm inclined to think the same thing, you know, it it, it makes sense to me. And then just kind of as you're talking about these uh, demons or what have you, um, the idea of a false shepherd comes to mind, you know, persuading yeah. you to to not follow the the real good shepherd if you will but pretending to be one um themselves but then leading you astray or whatever well i mean if we see that with the like the priest class of history and even modern day why would we think that that type of behavior would stop outside of the body <laughs> right exactly right probably right. just intensifies yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, and I think it's easy to persuade someone, especially if they got the priest jive the whole life, like, you know, you're going to hell if you're a bad person, and then they felt like they're a bad person because a lot of people are unhealed and unrealized in their life and then die. And mm-hmm. you could convince them after they died that if you go to God or go into the light, you're going to be punished, you're going to be disintegrated, you're going to be destroyed and cease to exist, whatever, go to hell, whatever way to describe it convince them the only way to exist is if you serve us you know mm. do what we say right and so they think that they do it out of fear of punishment and fear of non-existence mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. these stories of like yama may very well be there to create that fear of a punishment so that there's something else that can be done on the uh you know the back end after the death of the being because you know, it's like to go to look at this. I don't really like the, I, I don't like the Yama character very much, <laughs> but <laughs> I like the, I like Mercury. I like Jesus. I don't like Yama so much. I don't, I didn't really like Karen too much. Right. You no, know, the right. ones that are waiting to punish <laughs> yeah, or, or guard. <laughs> right. 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 And uh Shalato, I definitely am not, I, I wouldn't want to meet. <laughs> That's the next one here. Awesome. Um, so Sholatl was a god of fire and lightning. He is commonly depicted as dog-headed, a dog-headed man, and was a soul guide for the dead. He was the god of twins and monstrosities and the twin brother of Quetzalcoatl, both being sons of the virgin Chimalma. Mm. The Mesoamericans viewed twins as unnatural monstrosi- monstrosities, allegedly. So thus the twins and mon- monstrosities in the same god. And allegedly, they commonly killed one of the two twins shortly after birth. That sounds like a metaphor for cutting the cord and, you know, doing something not negative with the placenta. Quetzalcoatl and Xolotl constitute the twin phases of Venus as the morning and evening star, respectively. Like the Egyptian Set, he protected the sun from the dangers of the underworld, underworld, which was called Mictlan. Xolotl originated in the southern regions and may represent fire rushing down from the heavens or light flaming up in the heavens. Shalatl was originally the name for lightning beast in mm. the Maya tribe, often taking the form of a dog with a torch in his hand. Mm. Or dog had a guy with a torch in his hand. So, you know, we can't rule out the whole Maya, Maya, Yama thing. Now that Buddha mm. Yoga brought that up, you know, I think you have something, you may be... You know, I think this is uh, coming from old world Florida, right? Like one of this is his idea or an idea that he he likes to to dive into, right? That the new world is the old world. Yeah. And um, I, I, I could see it. <laughs> I could see it. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, me too. It's not something that I spend too much time researching uh, or whatever, but I can absolutely see it too. And it seems like the evidence is mounting from what I gather. But uh, yeah, interesting. You know, this fire connection with several of these deities, it reminds me again of the hermit card being a shepherd and he's always carrying that light. He's always carrying a lantern or a lamp. And so um, I'm just thinking of fire lighting up darkness, obviously, you know, um, and and obviously if you're going to the underworld, you would want some sort of headlamp of some sort. So I think that's very curious. The The twin thing, too, I'm going to be chewing on this one for a little while. I think that's fascinating how often this is coming up. Yeah, right. It's, yeah. <laughs> you know, like just because you have you have Hermes associated with the lover's card, which is, you know, twin symbolism, Gemini's twin symbolism. But Hermes himself isn't reportedly a twin. Mm-hmm. But it makes you wonder, you know, granted that the Greeks appear to have just cannibalized older stuff and kind of fucked it up in a lot of ways, too if they just missed that detail or lost that detail along the way, but whatever they were drawing from definitely did have that detail. And that's why we see it in Yama and Shalatel and uh, Shuri and all these older versions of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Or even Jesus. I mean, Jesus has like the brother, John, you know, there's twin symbolism with Jesus all day or Jesus and Lucifer, the which is, you know, exactly the same relationship as Quetzalcoatl and Shalatl. True, true. Yeah, no, exactly. And I hadn't, that isn't something I've been thinking about at all lately, but you're absolutely right. Um, the other thing I'll say that's always interesting to me. So because I went on this Setian sort of trip recently, but like the Egyptians said, he protected the sun from the dangers of the underworld. And there's this idea that the sun, as powerful as it is, um, has basically roots in the darkness or is protected from the darkness or comes from something along these lines. And so Set was considered to be like one of the most ancient sort of deities. And he was related to chaos and his mother, um, depending on who you ask, there's different interpretations of this, but his mother was Typhon. And so his mother was in the Northern sky. Uh, I always hear the correspondence between uh, either Draco or Ursa major being his mother. And uh, he was said to dwell behind Ursa major. And so you have this dark entity, this dark deity protecting the light deity, you know? And so um, relying on these older gods that are more associated with darkness and chaos and things like that um, coming back to uh, protect younger deities is kind of something that I've noticed a little bit. And so it's kind of referenced here. And then I've kind of been thinking about set as well because of sunset. Right. And so um, I think that there's definitely a relationship, you know, I, I kind of see honestly uh, the goddesses associated with Libra kind of being related to this dark feminine, this primordial mother sort of idea. That's what I pick up personally, you know, and her child is said to be set. So I just kind of think it's interesting when you have sunset set is known as being uh, the child of this mother. And then in the word sunset, when uh, you look at the Libra glyph, it's arguably a sunset and it's at the equinox Libra is. And so the sun is descending into the underworld and here we call it sunset. I think there's some sort of relationship there, but just wanted to kind of riff on that for a second. Yeah, man. Like we haven't even 
dove into the Egypt side of this. <laughs> yeah, no. The, like this is there's so much more meat on these bones <laughs> to for sure do more psychopomp talk. Have you heard of the black dog in folklore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just I, I don't know much the, about it, but I'll just read this off of uh wiki here. The black dog is a supernatural spectral or demonic hellhound from English folklore that has been seen throughout Europe and the Americas. It is usually unnaturally large with glowing red or yellow eyes is often connected with the devil and is sometimes an omen of death. It is associated with electrical storms and also with crossroads barrows, which is like a, uh, like a burial mound, essentially places of execution and ancient pathways. Black dogs are generally regarded as sinister or malevolent, and a few, such as the bar guest and Shuck, are said to be directly harmful. Some black dogs are said to behave benevolently benevolently, as guardian black dogs and guide travelers at night onto the right path or protect them from danger. So it's a common folklore motif, essentially. And... It goes back really, really far, and it does seem to be related to, you know, this. Okay, the fact that this is the this is the thing, the fact that people still to this day, you know, I listen to Mysterious Universe all the time. I never miss an episode of that show, so they are always scouring for people's reports and stories of weird and fringe phenomenon, paranormal, and. You know, they're, so they're deep into this and they talk about the black dog re- reports that still happen to this day all the time. People do see these glowing red eye black dogs and sometimes right before they die unexpectedly, you know, or someone around them dies after they see this dog. That that That's the type of thing. I know it's all anecdotal, but that's the type of thing that makes me wonder, like. Is this just a priest system that got spread mm. throughout the world, or do people associate these dogs in the underworld and death because there's something I don't know in a Jungian sense that is an archetype in our psyche? It's a symbol that's you know archetypes being that it's primordial. It's before our assumptions and before what we've learned. It's like it's mm. part of the makeup of whatever reality is that you know just the way that the knees and lead and the luminary we call Saturn seem to have like a, f- a legitimate concrete correspondence to them for some reason. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's so interesting though. Like I, these I love correspondences the way that. are real. Right. Right. Before assumptions uh, that that's, that's really interesting. I don't know if I've heard it put like that before, or if that's common or whatever. <laughs> Josh says my, my dog just hit me in the balls when you said that new topic <laughs> one of the things someone has mentioned to me I think it was my friend Pedro uh, we were talking about dog symbolism one night and he said that dogs dig for bones you know and so we associate dogs with digging into the earth right and so to me that's really really fascinating uh, and I think it kind of lends itself to the archetype of the dog you know being related to the underworld and everything else um, I just want to show you just because you brought it up, obviously black dogs, but this is the moon card from the uh, Thoth deck here. And sometimes it takes a quick second for it to focus. Hopefully it gets there sooner than later. There you go. 
So you see that there are two Anubis figures um, in front of those towers and then right below them. Twin symbolism. There you go. Twin symbolism. 100%. Yeah, exactly, dude. Um, You see those dogs, those black dogs. Also notice that Anubis is carrying um, two. They're each carrying a scepter. And I could be mistaken, but that actually might be a scepter related to Set. Right. I think it is actually perhaps Thoth and the ibis headed sort of nature of Thoth. But also notice that the two Anubis figures are also carrying um, what looks like the glyph of Mercury as well, just kind of being related to everything that we're discussing here. So I think this card is relevant for a few different reasons. I so there you think go. they're holding the Waz scepter. Yeah, I think actually, that's, that's called. Is that uh, I think that might be set actually. Yeah, it represents set or knum, oh. which is like the shaping is basically re- related to chaos, but also the power to shape the chaos. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, that's a gravy portal right there. Oh, yeah, you're still for sure. Big, for sure. <laughs> oh man, I'm having fun. We're getting there though. We're almost to like the end of what I have prepared. You doing all right on time? Yeah, dude, I'm solid. Oh, if you want to keep going, just like past. what you said, sorry, there's so much to chew on. There's so much to get to. I know this is multiple episodes, but I'm happy to keep going. Yeah, it's it's so great that you were able to join me, you know, in lieu of Gabe. Appreciate you being here, man. I mean, I yeah, would like yeah. to have both yeah, of you, you got here, it. but this is going great. <laughs> oh, right on. We right have on. A, we've developed such a nice rapport over the time we've been friends. I really am grateful. Absolutely, dude. Likewise. This one, this one might not have a lot. I, I say that we we probably will talk a lot about it. Yeah, I mean, it, this is the main guy. <laughs> this is everybody's favorite. So the Etruscan name for Hermes is Terms or mm. Termes, and as you can see, like that, uh, the reason why you might be Terms or Termi is because people get confused about what that last glyph is. Is it an M? Is it an E? Is it a Sigma, like an S? <laughs> so terms or termy uh, are, you know, and you can see how that would, uh, or thermy, you know, or therms, you know, mm. the T or TH gets interchanged. So first of all, now that we can start to see that Hermes is also terms or therm, thermy, I mean, I, I'm thinking thermal, like heat and warmth. Mm. Back to that idea of like thermal vents, you know, under warm underground geothermal, like the heat of there's like this, you know, what what happens with soil, you know, black, really good black soil. It retains heat. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there's this uh, this warmth that the life in, in the microbiome of the soil, there's like a warmth to it. So to me, I think that there's a connection there that you have. Termes and therm, like thermal energy, warmth and heat energy. I think that there's something there. Yeah, I could see that for sure. So, and also look at his staff. Look at the Etruscan Hermes' staff. Do you see that? I do. I'm looking at it right now. Hello. (laughs) Is that a bull? Looks like a bull to me. Yeah, for sure. The, The bull of heaven, perhaps, you know, uh, Perhaps, I don't know, is it related to the fact that we might live in a Taurus field and that the uh, pathway out of here, the um, the northern 
you know, world axis location, the hyperbola of the Taurus field, the trunk of the tree, you know, is it related to that? I'm not sure, but it's interesting too, that there's a spear that's pointing to that bowl as well. And then also the staff is, is making a T. So I'm thinking of Tau cross, right? And so again, related to the bowl. And then even that spear that's pointing up to the bull, you know, looks like there's a wreath down below. And so just a nice kind of culmination of masculine and feminine and totality and things like that. Very well put. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen the bull on the end of a staff before this. I actually, I have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I can only think of like one or two examples um, and they're fairly modern. They weren't this old at all. It's also interesting how dark the, and swarthy his complexion is, you know, for we're talking yes. about the the region of modern day Italy mm-hmm. and people are, I don't know, maybe some of them have a more copper colored skin. But I just find that interesting because, you know, we have this question of the, the phenotypes and how they spread about the world. Uh, so right. symbolism that re- relates to terms or Hermes, the caduceus, of course, the Pet, uh, petosos or petasos, the broad-rimmed mm. hat, the sun hat, and the teleria, the winged sandals. And according to the Greeks, who may or may not be correct about anything at all, <laughs> they were made by the winged sandals were made by Hephaestus. Another word for them was Toronta P, uh, Padilla. Mm. Padilla. I think that's interesting, just because the whole like. The, the correlation with the foot, you know, PED, that route relating to foot. Oh, uh, yeah. And, you know, one of the one of the names for the Hades or underworld God that the Romans called him was Dees Pater. And, you know, I started thinking about that, that word Pater. And it it really, you know, if you do that. D and T switch and the L and R switch, then Potter is petal, petal. <laughs> Interesting. Uh. You know, there could be something there. Um, petal, obviously, okay, there's this, the sandal reference, yes. But then there's petals as in uh, the steering mechanism. Like, um, you know, if the if the P becomes an R, as is wont to do with the the Greek row looks like a P, maybe it's even related to the idea of the rudder. The rudder has to do with steering or guidance. I'm just mm. spitballing here, but I feel like yeah. there's a reason that there's this closeness between the words. Uh, not to mention that, um, well, the word for a rudder in ancient Greek is pedal, pedalion or pedalion. So, you know, to switch, um, to make all those switches, like the P become an R and the T become a D and the L become an R to turn pedal into or potter into rudder. Well, rudder, it actually is the word pedal. <laughs> so like in Greek. So I, I'm, you know, I think that there's something there. I think that. This is something I've overlooked up to this point that potter, the word potter for father that is applied to like, you know, the high priest and that Jew potter, you potter, the top God, that also this idea of the steersman or the rudder of the ship mm. is actually hiding within that word potter. And that blew my mind today whenever I, or I think I 
realized that last night. And I was like, how did we miss this? I think that's really there. Not oh, interesting. And, and the word pedal, like P-E-T-A-L in ancient Greek refers to the pages of a book, Petalion. Oh. Back to the book symbolism. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, just real quick, as you're saying Potter, I'm reminded that um, in some of my reference material that I have around, it was saying that an alternative image object for the scales of Libra is actually the Potter's wheel, which I think is really interesting. Um, you can look at the spinning uh, uh, um, the spinning element of anything really as kind of being a balancing act, you know. Um, so whether it's a ballerina spinning or even you know whatever it might be a top spinning or whatever. So there's this idea of spin actually that some people have kind of put on Libra, which I wasn't really that familiar with. Um, and then there was something else you just mentioned right now that I was going to bring up, but it's escaping me. So if it comes back, I'll let you know. Well, we did just talk about the Waz scepter and shaping yeah. the the power to shape the chaos. Mm -hmm. And apart, oh, from, yes. apart from that scepter being associated with Set and Anubis is also representative of Kanum. And Kanum is the potter who creates shapes the bodies of humanity on the potter's wheel from clay. Just, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. just right, thought, right. There's a connection there too. The potter, Definitely. back to the word potter. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. For sure. <laughs> Oh man, it's like that's what makes this so fun and obsessive for for guys like me and you. That the more little points of data you get, the more they all connect, and you're just like, and this is this, and this is this, and it just becomes like hypomanic in a fun way. It's great. It's true. It's true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, in medieval depictions, though, of Hermes, he's he's feathered sometimes, or his feet have wings growing out of them. Thought that is mm. interesting. Or just I would love like, to see a feathered version. Yeah, you don't have to look it up, there. but I'm, I'm going to look that up, though. I might be able to. I think I might have it in another window. No worries if not. That's really intriguing, though. Yeah, I know it's there in the, the medieval depictions. You know, not mm -hmm. that those are necessarily symbolically accurate. There could be more of a degradation. Okay, I don't have it, but uh, I know good. I saw it today. I know it's out there. So um, the Greeks actually gave Hermes the epithet. Cthonios to represent his role as an underworld uh, escort in the Etruscan artwork. They depict terms in his role as psychopomp conducting the soul into the afterlife. In this capacity, he is sometimes shown on Etruscan sarcophagi. In one case, side by side with Charon and Cerberus In another depiction in which the God is labeled as terms, Atis or terms of Hades. He brings the shade of Tiresias to consult with Odysseus in, in the underworld. So I think there's actually like an Etruscan Odysseus myth that potentially predates the, the Greek version. So mm. we're, I think we'll leave terms at, at this, you know, Hermes himself, we could just talk about forever and ever. Oh, and, it's totally true. <laughs> and I wouldn't mind, you know, like I wouldn't mind at all to go deep, way deeper into Hermes and talk about all the various iconography throughout the centuries, his role as a fertility God, his role as the God of boundaries, as a messenger, as a shepherd and on and on and on. He's like the Omni God. And <laughs> I like, I like that. I would like to go into that more, 
But, you know, for the sake of where we're at, I mostly just wanted to make sure that people saw that there is this older Etruscan version and, you know, some of the interesting things that we derived out of this, I'm happy with. Totally. Now here, back to the shepherd thing, though, you've got Jesus with the lamb, you got Hermes with the lamb, and you got Buddha holding the lamb. Now, the full disclosure, the one on the right is somewhat more modern. Yeah. It's not ancient, but I wanted to include it just because look at Hermes' hair in the middle one here. Mm-hmm. And just think about how you've seen Buddha typically right. shown, like what his hair looks like. Good call. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. And they both have the mother, Maya, same exact mom. So it's the thing. So real quick regarding uh, the middle version here. So we see him obviously uh, with a lamb or a a ram, a sheep, but uh, there's other versions of Hermes Creophoros with a calf around him. So a cow. Right. And so uh, the exact same setup, except for you can tell it's obviously a cow. So hence his staff that has the uh, the bull on top. Also, I wanted to mention if you want to go back one slide, if you don't mind. the fact that I was talking about the hermit being a conductor of souls, a psychopomp, I think that's kind of the lineage that he comes from personally. And one of the things you will notice about the hermit, one, he has a beard. It's kind of an interesting beard here. There's something going on here symbolically with the fact that it's just kind of like, I don't know if that was a fashion thing at the time or what. The way it's the pointed. Th- the way it's pointed. Yeah, exactly. But one of the things with uh, the hermit card, Hermes, uh, hermeticism, hermit, right, is that he has a hunched back. And does it look like they're trying to emphasize his back here? You know, it's just kind of a curious sort of thing that I'm mm. noticing. You know, it's it's kind of bulby a little bit. It reminds me kind of of the hermit and the hermit has that staff, right? That's a good point, man. That's not the way your shoulders and back look like that's <laughs> not the way a head sits on a back <laughs> in real right. life. You know, it's either bad, badly done or uh, intentional. And I'm probably going to lean towards intentional. And then also his hand gesture there is kind of kind of interesting, right? It is. You know, know, another thing, the fact that he's the messenger of Tinia, who is the Etruscan Jupiter, Mm -hmm. Tinia, who they also just call Tin. What's Jupiter's, what metal is Jupiter's metal is Tin. (laughs) what's 10 is the Mm. 10th number it's x you know Mm. it's the it's all 10 fingers um one thing i read in higgins uh, last night or the night before that was really interesting to me was how krishna krishna had an appellation uh they called him nath g and higgins was talking about how well to me it's obvious for sure that the g like j-i is the same word as IE or Ye or Ya, you know, the, the older two letter name of the top God. Mm-hmm. But then Nath is, you know, remembering that vowels are fully interchangeable, that they're not the meat, they're not the bones of the, uh, the word, that Nath is the same as Neith, the God Neith of Egypt. And Neith is a god of wisdom. That word in Egyptian supposedly means wisdom. Hmm. So if you put Neith backwards, it's TN or Tin. Ah, oh, I see. <laughs> Which is this Etruscan deity. But TN is the Chinese god of the heavens, the god, like the all father god of all the cosmos. Ah. Oh. 
you know? Right. So it's like, wow, this just connects everywhere, you know? Tin, so I think that that Etruscan tin and, and the uh, Ortinia and the Chinese Tien, uh, there's a there there to explore further in the future. Right, right, right. Makes sense, dude. I love it. Uh, one of the things I'm noticing is I my thing, I'm, I'm much slower when it comes to wordplay and puns and things like that than you guys. But I'm always on the hunt and look out for er. And there you have it right there in, in terms. Right. And so or Hermes or Virgo, you know, I'm mm-hmm. always catching the urge just like everywhere and it being this primordial original sort of thing. Um, that's my understanding, at least. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Or er, the earth. <laughs> earth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So we looked at these guys. Uh, what's next? I'm pretty much there. I mean, I'm pretty happy with where we're at. <laughs> No, nice. oh, wait, no, wait, there's one more. <laughs> Let's look at Orcus. Ooh. Isn't that cool? <laughs> That's interesting. This, I'm, I don't think this is ancient. I think this is more modern building, mm-hmm. but man, it's cool. Yeah. Oh, Slick Dissonant just popped in. Ooh. If, uh, if we can add him, his mic and cam are still not active. I'm going to keep an eye on it, though. Yeah, yeah. Love it if he could weigh in. For sure. So Orcus. Yeah, okay. I don't know if it's working for him. Orcus is a god of the underworld, a punisher of broken oaths in Etruscan and Roman mythology. His name was used for the underworld itself. He's basically conflated with Dees Pater and Pluto or Hades. And... um, I think that we get this name Orc, you know, from Orcus, like the modern idea of the monster and like the the tusks, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yes. Makes sense. So the other thing about Orcus that I think is most important, you know, that might be overlooked. Well, okay. There is also with the G switch to C, Orcus can definitely be like orgo or ogro like ogre i think that's there Mm -hmm. you know again orcs and ogres definitely go together (laughs) um and i need to find the receipts on this but i am pretty sure that the word ogre I got, I got this from Pierre Sabak a long time ago. So I'm going to look for, I didn't have, again, my power went out today, so I couldn't chase down the receipt on this, but I am pretty sure that the word ogre actually also refers to etymologically is a word referring to a watcher. Oh, okay. Interesting. And so with this whole idea that these, you know, Orcus and a lot of these characters like Yama, they are, Punishing people for their sins or punisher of broken oaths. Think of Odin. You know, a lot of the ways that you see Odin written is actually Odin, not mm. Odin. The word oath is right there in his name. Not to mention, you know, Odi, um, you know, with the basically AT, like the Etruscan AT we were looking at. Remembering that T and D can switch really easily and that the Romans would typically uh, pop an S or pop an N at the end of a word. Mm. If it didn't have it, they really liked words to end with S or with N, you know, AT 
and Odin could be could be the same guy. Oh. You know, I think that there's like a, a link there philologically too. Right, right. <laughs> Real quick, just regarding this watcher business, uh, this is related to scale symbolism as well because there's so many different myths about you know, your deeds being weighed or whatever you might want to say. Um, and then you kind of getting uh, whatever sort of decision based on, um, you know, how that all adds up on whether you're going to have a favorable transition or not. But the idea behind it is that um, it's basically implying that no action goes unnoticed, you know, that the scales weighing sort of your karmic points or whatever you want to say is this idea that somebody is watching. There is something keeping tally of all these things. Odin and his two ravens that see everything and report back to him. Oh, yeah, there you go. Totally. Yeah, right. Nice one, Katriana. And Thunder Chicken, you're right. Wednesday is from Woden. Mm-hmm. And Woden is Mercury. In French, it's Mercredi. Mercredi is the word for Wednesday. So Mercury is right there in the French word for the all of the days of the week are named after pagan gods. I'm pretty that's how that's how this book starts. Anacalypsis. Everyone give yourself a couple of years and read this book. <laughs> I was just gonna say it looks pretty hefty. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm I'm this far into it. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> I've been working gotcha. on it for so long. I seriously in you know, because I also take notes when I learn something. I, you know, it ends up like one sitting to read from this book. I will be, I'll get through like a page. <laughs> oh, dude, I, I get the exact same way where I'm like, my cup is full after one page. And then I have to constantly <laughs> remind myself that uh, it's kind of pointless to highlight everything that, you know, you, you I should stopped pick and highlighting choose what's really and important. started putting it in a notebook instead in a more organized fashion because the highlights weren't getting me anywhere. <laughs> I did start that way. Started yeah, with yeah. Highlights. But then I realized, like, uh, if everything's highlighted, I'm just going to have to reread the whole book to access the highlights. (laughs) Exactly. So, okay. So Orcus, though, the last thing I want to say about it is, again, G switch with C. So Orcus and Argus. Argus is the many eyed god, right? That uh, it's like a giant with all these eyes, the panopticon of the uh, Greek mythos, (laughs) Argus. He uh, was slain by Hermes' sword in the hands of, what's his name? The guy that slays the Gorgon? Um, Blanking on his name? You know. I'm not sure. (sighs) Too many names. (laughs) Are you thinking of, uh, is it Perseus? Yeah, Perseus. Like, that's an easy one. I don't know why I blanked. It's getting late. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) that same phonetic, though, is Arga. So here's Orcus's mm. mouth going into the underworld. Arga is the Ark. And, you know, so now we can see the Orc and the Ark <laughs> are, uh, mm-hmm. it's the same word, you know, if the vowels can switch. So we have reason to associate this Orcus deity with the idea, again, that the Ark is the microcosm. The Earth is the macrocosm. The Ark preserves life in the catastrophe cycle the earth preserves life in the long term and in the season of the winter um you know in the the course of the year so i i just found it fascinating that we have this orcus guy and this also that one deserves more research (laughs) definitely just want to mention real quick uh something about the mouth and obviously it's mouth uh you know it's like asking you to walk within it or whatever but it's also 
what's on the other side? What are you going to encounter? Is it the underworld itself? And uh, the Hebrew letter associated with mouth, right, is peh, P-E-H. And then that's associated with the tower card. And so even in like the Thoth deck, you know, the tower, the blasted tower, it's coming down and there's this big mouth down below that's spewing fire. So it's almost like this tower is like a Tower of Babel sort of thing, trying to reach the heavens, you know, this kind of ascension sort of symbol. But then uh, God doesn't like this plan, doesn't like this idea. So the tower comes crumbling down. And so then it's kind of implied that, you know, they're going to be going to the afterlife. They're they're going to die. You know, you're not going to survive that one. They're falling literally from this tower. Right. So they're going to go to the underworld. And to me, symbolically, it's like that mouth is waiting for them to receive them uh, to go to these depths or whatever. Yeah, they call the entrance so, to a cave a mouth of a cave. That's right. The yeah, opening yeah, yeah. of the mouth. <laughs> totally, totally. Before we uh, wrap things up here, um, do you mind if I just go over these two slides real quick? Sure, man. I, I have be. something on my mind, though. Before we get to that, there's something that I want. Oh, no worries. If you don't mind. Um, Please, dude. I'm here for you. So the last Interverse episode with Hakan really, really amazing second hour where he tells his story of being in a maximum security prison in Turkey, being taught Tantra techniques about, or Tantra techniques. That's like saying Chai tea. Tantra means technique, but dream teachers were coming to him and showing him how to do Tantra that would allow him to experience a more nirvanic or bliss state self-realization while in prison. So He's going through this story and telling me it. And there was a detail that I missed where he's talking about the moment of truth where he has the like Samadhi or the enlightenment experience where after this happens, this ultimate, like in the moment, self-realized bliss, ecstatic Kundalini thing occurs to him. The next day he gets just happens to be released from prison and all charges dropped and he never saw a Whoa. trial. Yeah. Wow. So he like, he, he attained spiritual liberation and then in the physical world, he was freed from prison. That's beautiful. Yeah. And he like, for the record, he was not actually guilty of anything that should be in prison. He shouldn't be in prison, but spiritually he was, he was spiritually imprisoned from, you know, where he was at in his consciousness. So like his life took that turn, even though he wasn't actually guilty of crime. So it was a really amazing story. It's super worth it. If people are not Interverse Plus members on Patreon or Rockfin, that second hour with Hakan in the last Interverse episode is the most worth it story I've ever heard. (laughs) It's funny, too, because Turkey has so much Hades stuff going on and there are caves with the vapors and everything, temples to Mm. Pluto and all that, the whole nine in, in Turkey. But there's a point in that story where he was talking about the moment where it clicked and he had this, like he had this transformative Kundalini enlightenment moment and he, and I missed it in the conversation. I missed it. He, he said that there was like a, a gust of wind and he was indoors, but he felt this whooshing like wind blowing on him as he made this transition from being out of balance or whatever, like the state that we're all operating in all the time to being actually purely in the present moment of eternity and bliss. And I, I think I just wasn't at the state in my consciousness to catch that detail, but 
So, okay, we see this association with wind with a lot of these like transition gods, mm. wind and, and lightning and things like that. And I, after I was hearing this in the second hour of, you know, when we premiered it Sunday night, I remembered like hearing him say that it triggered a memory in me of a couple of times in my life. Um, two of the three times were psychedelics were involved, but and this is totally anecdotal. I get it. That's not something I can prove to anybody. But I've had experiences where I felt wind when I was indoors and there was no wind. And I felt this transition into a timeless moment where after this whoosh of wind, you know what they say about like the moment is eternal. You know, the mm -hmm. eternal present, the present moment is all that exists. Right. I literally have experienced being in a moment that was endless. Like, wow. not like it was time was frozen, but like the same couple of seconds was like looping endlessly. Mm. <laughs> and I, I don't know how else to describe it, but I was basically more than one time in my life. This has happened three times. There's a whoosh wind. And then I'm timeless uh, outside of time. I'm able to just be in that moment, observe everything in that moment in, in all detail. And um, two of the times there was someone with me who went into that state with me. Whoa. And so me and them were just communicating. And like the reason I knew it was timeless one of the times was because it was before it was, I was at a concert and the music was about to start. And we got in this timeless, eternal present moment. And the music just wouldn't start. And I'm like, we're, how long is it going to be? The show is supposed to start in just a minute. And then when it, when we consciously chose to leave that state, like dialed it down <laughs> our energy or the substance we were on started to wear off and it dialed down or whatever, the whoosh of the wind transitioned again. And then time resumed its normal flow. So I just wanted to share that, that like that detail, I missed that whenever I was talking to him, but I actually totally get what he was, what he was talking about. And there's something very mystical that's possible where we can, I think we have the, we have the ability to step in and out of time. Mm. And I think we don't know how it works. Mm. I don't know how to do it, but I have experienced it. And I think that it's something that is teachable i think that that's what tantra was always supposed to be was to teach people how to you know because imagine what you could do if you could just exit time for a while and then come back like literally like hit pause on the the movie that is life and think mm. and reflect and you know have a moment to catch your breath whatever <laughs> like right so it's a thing believe me or not but yeah booty yoga gets it <laughs> I'm not surprised about that. <laughs> so you can step out of time, uh, people give it a shot. And uh, yeah, there's a wind thing that happens. Totally. Like a wind blowing that happens. That's fascinating, dude. Uh, I'm not surprised that your buddy has some interesting stories and has had some interesting experiences given his art, <laughs> you know, that's all I know about him. Right. It, it's uh, he's the, the artist, right. With all these amazing sort of prints and stuff like that. Right. That you used to have behind you. So I've been a kind of a fan from afar. Whenever I see it, I appreciate it. Um, but I'd like to know more about him. I got to check out that episode. Yeah. The second hour will blow your mind. That's one of the best stories I've ever heard. And now, 
And now you can go. I just had that on my <laughs> chest and I meant no, to no, say that's cool. that. And I, mean, I needed to set the record straight that uh, I didn't. Because he, he like res, he reacted as if like, oh, he's not understanding. I don't think I can put this into words. But actually, I do. I did get it. And I wanted to help translate it to everyone else. Because it's so hard to describe this transcendental stuff in language. I gotcha. I respect that. Uh, that reminds me, I have a, a concert wind story and it was it was indoors and i was at a concert yeah, indoors in the wind right yeah so i was at a concert and uh, a band was playing and i i felt this gust of wind out of nowhere and it was so strong i'm like what is going on i thought maybe the air conditioner turned on or a fan turned on or something like that it wasn't a very big venue and then i just turn around behind me and there's two metalheads with really long hair head banging, you know, just, just, just a couple of feet from me. And it was creating so much wind that literally uh, I had to turn around and see what was going on. So that, that's my concert wind story. Very different. <laughs> when I'm at concerts, uh, sometimes I'll hear a crack and then feel some wind. And it's my buddy Kabir fa- literally fanning me with a big fan. He's, usually <laughs> in, the ch- he's in the chats a lot. Kabir is a homie. Nice. Nice. Cool. So yeah. Um, I have a couple slides, so just slide one and two, and then maybe we could even just get to three. It's real quick, but uh, it relates to Libra symbolism, underworld symbolism, and uh, kind of this point that I've been trying to make regarding uh, the world axis. And so uh, it's just a, a few quick sentences from one of my favorite symbolic dictionaries by this guy named Jean Chevalier, and uh, I think he gets it. And so... Um, there we go. There we go. So starting from where the uh, that black line is. So so this is an entry for scales. And so this is my thing, right, is looking at the symbolic sort of uh, entries and references for whatever sign we're in. And so in this case, the scales. So he says, uh, when the pans are in balance at the equinoxes, the pointer on the scales or the sword, which is identical with it when I agree with that, becomes the symbol of the changeless center. The polar axis, which stands for it, points to the Great Bear, which in ancient China was called the Jade Scales. Sometimes, however, the two pans of the celestial scales were represented by the Great and Little Bear. Ritual texts of Chinese secret societies add that the scales in the City of Willows are magnificent and shine-like. And then if you move on to the next slide. And shine like the stars and constellations of which they are effectively the reflection at the foot of the cosmic axis. Furthermore, the Sanskrit word for scales, Tula, is the same as that for the Holy Land located in the north that is at the pole. And so um, so I just think it's a very interesting observation. The scales being scales. I thought you would like that. Right. Yeah. So there's this idea that literally Ursa Major and Minor are scales um, of of universal or cosmic balance. And literally, it's the world axis that is the vertical axis within uh, the traditional sort of scale that we're used to kind of thinking about. And um, this kind of relates to what we were talking about last week with Jason, you know, and what we I think we brought it up a little bit earlier. But, you know, the scales for the weighing of the souls and how it looks like a cross, you know, but that vertical axis is what makes it all go. So I think he he's right on with this one. I think that's fascinating. Psychostasis. That's what it says. Psychostasis. Psychostasis, the weighing of the soul. Yep. That's a 
good 50 cent vocab word for the night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then uh, since you have my files up, uh, if you just want to go to slide three. So here's just an example of uh, Hermes with the scales as well on, on yeah. this base here, right? Yeah, because he does everything. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, the scales uh, for the judgment of souls, you can see that he's holding a, a little uh, wand staff thing and it has the uh, glyph of Mercury. Oh, and look, yeah, that glyph of Mercury on a larger zoom in is the bearded snakes are the, the horns of the glyph of Mercury are those bearded snakes. Ooh, yes, totally. Totally. Oh. Yeah. Nice. So that's what I wanted to share real quick. So thanks, man. And there you go. Yeah. In case we needed it. <laughs> Man, yeah, I mean, we could decode images like this all night. Forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, this was fun, man. Thanks for having me. So much fun, dude. And Gabe just sent me another voicemail. I don't know if that's for the show, but uh, I'm actually feeling ready to wrap it up. But <laughs> So I'm going to just go ahead. It's getting a little late on my end. It's been a fun time. Thanks, everyone, who's been on this ride with us. And uh you know, let us know in our Telegram group, the Interverse Telegram group or the Vibrant Telegram group, if you would like more of this topic. You know, I I kind of would. I think it could happen. I'm really enjoying doing my own sort of research, bringing that to the show rather than always depending on guests for that. But Mario, you're always welcome. If you uh, just want in on something we happen to be talking about that night and you didn't get the invite, open invitation. Right on, man. Yeah, yeah. No, I kind of symbolism you would like to put our heads together about, and we both do some research on and bring it together. I'd love that too. So, yeah, always you're always a gentleman and a scholar. Loved hanging out tonight, buddy. Thanks, dude. Likewise, uh, you always do good research. I appreciate you know just the different rabbit holes that you go in, and uh, I like the fact that you're picking out more obscure sort of deities and references and you're really diving deep with all of this stuff. So there are several things here that, you know, I was unaware of. So um, every single time I come on, man, I always learn something. So much love, dude. Oh man, this is getting real feel good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Good night, everybody. Uh, hit me up if you want a tuning, you know, you do. It's good for you. Biofield tuning chance at interversepodcast.com. Go to the link in the show notes. You can learn more about it. Get your energy field in balance. Perfect thing to do. Instigate at the Libra season. And, uh, you know, typical new herbs. Interverse is the coupon code 10% off. Get yourself some great quality medicine from our buddy Kyle. Next Wednesday, we will be with Mario again and our astro herbalism crew to depict or to, uh, to get into the herbs of Libra. So that's going to be fun. So be here. Same bat time. Same bat channel. Good night. I love you all. Peace be unto you. See ya. All right, guys. Take care.